when you look at the factors that stand out that contribute to better brain health, it's nutrition, it's exercise, it's stress, it's sleep, and the one that we added is cognitive activity. So when we wrote the first book, we came with this um, acronym, NEURO, N-E-U-R-O, you know, N is for nutrition, E is for exercise, U is for unwind, which is stress management, not just getting rid of stress, but increasing good stress and getting rid of bad stress. And R is for restorative sleep, deep restorative sleep that helps cleanse the brain and has its own function and optimization of cognitive activity. One of the things that actually gets people to the dementia stage fastest is what they did throughout their life as far as cognitive activity and challenge. That's profoundly important. Sleep, we're talking about restorative sleep where people go through the four phases of sleep four to five times a night deeply. So sleep and investing in sleep is profoundly important. And then there's optimization, which is challenging mental activity. So all of it has to be done and all of them have to be done together and if it's not just a diet du jour, and if it's lifestyle, and especially if it's lived lifestyle, which is what we're trying to do in communities, we're talking about 90% reduction in Alzheimer's, dementia, stroke, without any biohacking or vitamin du jour or any of that stuff, with regular things you have in your environment. I am Dr. Dean Sherzai. I'm Dr. Aisha Sherzai, and together we are Sherzai MD, and this is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? Welcome to the podcast. My guest today, very exciting, our husband and wife neurology team, doctors Dean and Aisha Scherzay. Together, this highly credentialed duo are co-directors of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University, where they study all things brain health with a particular focus on lifestyle interventions to prevent cognitive decline and neurodegeneration. Here's the thing, chances are there's somebody in your life who's impacted by Alzheimer's because it's a disease that is exploding right now, currently afflicting well over 40 million people worldwide with incidents actually predicted to triple by 2050, which is very alarming. And although there currently is no cure, what most people don't realize is that Alzheimer's is not a genetic inevitability. It doesn't need to be a death sentence. And in fact, 90% of all Alzheimer's cases can be prevented. And so what distinguishes the Scherzes from their colleagues is this unique focus that they have on prevention. And they've had pretty remarkable success significantly reversing cognitive decline and adding vibrant years to many of their patients' lives. The Scherzes first graced the podcast a couple of years ago, that was episode 330, to talk about their first book, The Alzheimer's Solution. And today they return to bring us up to speed on the latest science on brain health, to discuss their new book, The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution. And of course, to provide you with the information, the tools, the nutrition and the lifestyle prescriptions that you need to optimize your cognitive functionality and hopefully sidestep the neurodegenerative diseases that begin much earlier in life than most people imagine and ultimately and devastatingly afflict far too many. This one is powerful, 
It's potentially life-changing and it's all coming up in a few, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton, birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, 
gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Okay, Team Sherzai. So you guys are gonna wanna break out a pen and paper because this one is quite dense. It's in depth, it's powerful. Like I said, it's potentially life altering. It's an amazing conversation that I think is gonna provide you everything you need to know about optimizing brain health, preventing cognitive decline, and how to avoid the grip of Alzheimer's. I should also mention that if you enjoyed this conversation, then check out their podcast, Brain Health and Beyond which is available on all the podcast platforms. Okay, let's get into it. What is it about age or maybe neurology that makes people set in their ways as they get older? It is a weird thing, right? It really is. It becomes more difficult to entertain new ideas. Yeah, I, I, I think it varies from person to person, but in my experience, it's just comfort. You know, when once you set a path and you're comfortable with it, your brain doesn't really allow you to change that mm -hmm. path. It's like walking on a snow track. Right. It's so deeply set and the walls are so solid that it's difficult for you to actually make a new path new again. Grooves. Right. Um, and it requires a lot of reflection and judgment and being okay to make mistakes and the discomfort in being uncomfortable, the, right. the comfort in being uncomfortable. Right, right, right. They can help you set new ways, but yeah, yeah, I, I don't mean, know what I, you yeah, want to say about it, that. It does seem like that becomes much more of a challenge. It does, it does. Um, we, the whole idea of change is not normal. I'm talking about chronic change. Acute change, we're good at it because uh -huh. an acute change, we had to for millions of years. There's a tree, there's a lion, you know, I better make change in my decision-making. I'm not gonna go down this path. Long-term change, we're not designed for that. We're not, our brains are not designed for long-term change. That's a completely different mechanism. Um, and, uh, and, if we, and if we don't address that, I mean, to be honest, I know that it's not being recorded, our political stances, everything is around this concept of being okay with change. I always say about 5% of population is future seekers. The other 95% is past protectors. Mm -hmm. And you have to be past protector in many ways because past protection has worked. Whatever has gotten you here is you depending on the past patterns, mm -hmm. right? But all the change in, the, in society, in the world around us is by those 5% or whatever, I'm using arbitrary number, that are comfortable, this is weird people, comfortable with change, with the unknown, the 360 degrees of unknown, you're willing to go there. And yet this house that's comfortable, you're willing to leave it to go to the next place. That's an unusual concept. Um, uh, which comes with the frontal lobe, but, but um, that's why as we get older, we become more set on all the strings that connects us to the past. You want us to sever, 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 to go to a new path that is unknown at a time where I'm already vulnerable. Yeah. That's too much risk. Yeah, yeah. Is there a, a genetic piece to that? When you look at that 5%, can you isolate out what it is that distinguishes them neurologically from- You can peers? tell very early. 
you can tell there, there, there's a genetic component and an environmental component. The genetic anxiety is at the core of all this stuff or a term that is like anxiety. We're using anxiety as a juxt, as a word that's as a filler, but it's mm. a little more than that. <clears throat> Our ability to deal with the world around us for the most part is for the, at the beginning is genetically, you can see the children, we have two children. Uh, both Trust of them, me, we're gonna talk about them, but go <laughs> ahead. But yeah. they're both very precocious, yeah. incredibly, but That's very- That's an understatement of the century. No. Yeah. Go ahead. Very, kind. very different though, yeah. very different. Alex is what you could see when you, when you were, uh, and I'm not putting him down because this is not a weakness. This is just our proclivities, we can change him. When you put him on the sand, when he was six months old, you saw him do this. He hated mm -hmm. sand. Sophie would crawl to the ocean. I mean, right, right away. Right. I mean, that's a threat. Why are you not threatened by, by the very thing you're supposed to be threatened by? No threat. So that threat aversion versus not threat, part of it is intrinsically mm -hmm. um, uh, ingrained in us. Part of it is actually data shows, part of it's actually programmed. How your mother reacts to anxiety provoking moments Mother, because the mother's there all the time. Mm. Whoever you're around the most and how they react, no, how they promote challenging situations and anxiety provoking situations, how they react with it and how they deal with it is the, forget about leadership masters, I got a PhD in leadership, forget about that. It ends and starts there. Yeah. You create situations that are a little bit anxiety provoking. You fail, nothing. Oh, my parents didn't react badly. You succeed, great. How you react and how those micro environments of threat aversion, threat response, threat creation and response is the foundation of all leadership. Yeah, I would think from an environmental perspective or I, I mean an evolutionary perspective that um, you know, maintaining your membership and good standing with your community is paramount, right? So yes. if that community is welcoming to people who push the boundaries and try new things, that's one thing. But if that sort of thinking outside the box is gonna alienate you, then um, there's gonna be some pushback, right? There's a disincentive that's, that's uh, butting up against somebody's willingness to entertain new ideas or try new things. Yeah, it absolutely. Always, yeah. And, and the culture that's been set in place that creates an aversion to change. Mm -hmm. The language, the micro languages, the, the, anything that somebody brings that is a little threatening to the status quo, you have things that are, oh, this is, um, this is arrogant. The word arrogant to push away people who have new ideas is universal. Uh -huh. It's it's such a ubiquitous silencing technique. Yes. And uh, when you look at when you look at the main reason why people are not willing to change is the fear of being ostracized. Like you said, right. nobody wants to get out of that comfortable zone because it's really difficult to be alone in your way of life, in your new methodology, in mm. your new habits. Mm. And that's that's the first step that people have to. Um, challenge themselves to take over. Right, given that though, it's interesting that most environments are not really that permissive when it comes to free thinking and you know creative expression. Most are pretty regimented around what's okay and what's not, but it would, it would seem like we should be more encouraging to that permissive environment. And you know, why is that, why are we not able to kind of make that more the case as opposed to, you know, the the slim 5% or whatever it is. Mm. Yeah. Well, we met in Afghanistan. 
and, and, and with Taliban around us. Yeah. Yet that same mentality exists here in the medical community. And by the way, this is me not bashing the medical community. Right, like, be careful. Oh, no, no, no. No, we love the medical. No, no, no. We're, we're part of them. You no, know? And, You're not comparing the medical community here to, to, to the, the Taliban. Taliban. No, 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 no. Let's not at clear all. that up. Just their mentality, that's all. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> no, but, but the stagnant comfort with the status quo right. is the same thing. I mean, the hallways of your limbic system are the same. Mm-hmm. You might have put it better clothes and better beards, and you know my beard was shaving a little better here than there. But if the mentality is I must maintain, it's not always overt. I must maintain the status, and I don't know even why because, but it makes me uncomfortable. It's the same. Yeah. I mean, I, to, uh, in two thousand two, before we met, two months earlier, I'm at NIH Experimental Therapeutics Branch. That's as wonky as 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 experimental as it gets speaking with Nobel Prize winners. Two months later, I'm in Afghanistan speaking with Taliban leaders, both places trying to bring change. And I can promise you the, 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 the language was much more sophisticated, mm-hmm. but the blockades were the same. Mm. Protection of the status quo. That's why, I mean, when we, we talk about dementia, we talk about stroke, we talk about mental health. Even now, the, the repetition of the same patterns over and over again. I'm now some other studies are starting with clinical trial and uh, with 100 people, 50 people, six months. We're done. We know it works. We're whole food plant based. Right. But reality is, if you go 20% better than what the Amer- standard American diet is, you will do 20% better in your healthcare. What does that mean? That means in Alzheimer's, that's $80 billion saved per year. Hmm. Right, right. Well, it's been a couple of years since you guys have been on the show. And in that intervening period of time, have you found that the sort of uh, conventional medical community has been a little bit more embracing of you than in years past, given the success that you're having and the results that you're seeing in your patients? Or what does that look like right now? They have. Um, We are seeing a lot of... um open-mindedness to the idea that lifestyle works, that it's important, that it should be a part and parcel of the bigger conversation about health and wellness in general. And, you know, everywhere we go to the conferences, medical conferences, and it was always focused on molecular research, which is very important. Mm -hmm. But lately there's been a lot of conversation about the importance of community-based research and lifestyle and addressing our environments, which is wonderful. So yes, they are very welcoming um, and I'm, I'm very encouraged to see that. Um, still contrived, still not as, as intensive as it needs to be. I think there's a lot of need for improvement, for better communication. And that's what Dean and I have been working on, reaching out into the communities to see what fits there. Because the cookie cutter model of something that fits, say, for example, you know, 50 to 60 year old Bostonian white men mm-hmm. wouldn't really be applicable in San Bernardino in a Hispanic community, for mm-hmm. example. So, um, finding out specifically what is applicable, what works long-term um, and what people can accept is the part that we are working on. Right. Um, so many things I wanna get into with you guys. Yeah. First of all, thank you for coming. It's our it's pleasure. Thank really you for having nice us. to see you guys. I'm delighted that you're here today. Um, we're gonna pick things up where we last left off with them a couple of years ago, but 
I got to get this out of out of the way first. I I got to talk about your kids because I'm I'm obsessed <laughs> with, with how accomplished these two young people are. Um, you've got your son Alex. He's is he 15 now? He's, He's 15. 15. He's yes. in college. Yes. Right. Sophia is how old is she? 13. 13. Yes. They've written this book, Walk Like an Elephant, which is all about protecting wild elephants from poachers, um, but just to give listeners or viewers a, a sense of what's going on here. Alex mastered calculus at eight, correct? Yes. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, he wrote this book. He completed high school at 10 with a SAT in the 90th percentile. He's the youngest person to have his research abstract be accepted to an international neuroscience conference. True yes. or false? Yes, true. Absolutely. Okay. Yes, yes. He's a pianist, he's a composer. Meanwhile, Sophia was reading fluently at two and a half. He, she was, yes. Good Lord. <laughs> and she co-wrote this book when she was eight. She finished high school when she was 10 with a 90th percentile on the PSAT and has been a speaker at Science LA in 2017 and That's 2018. Right. Yes. Both. All right. So I don't even know where to begin with this, but as neurologists, you're doing something right here. Like, <laughs> how do you account for this? There's a nurture aspect to this. There's a nature aspect to this. I mean, this is extraordinary. I've never heard of two young people in the same house excelling at such a level in terms of like their their brain health, which is what you guys are all about. So help me understand <laughs> what's going on. Um, and congratulations, <clears throat> by the way. I oh, mean, that's unbelievable. Very I'm feeling very thank insecure you so as a parent. No, no, oh my God. No, no, <laughs> not is, at all. Uh, the, the most important thing is, so I, I'm sorry if you, uh, no, the no. mother should, she's, she's actually I, the reason. No, we no, not at all. No, I her. think it's teamwork. And I think I just want to say something first. Yeah, and um, I, you know, there are a lot of times it's tough to talk about your children and because it's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. I always tell my friends, ask me in five years after they go through their teenage years, but um, just really proud of their accomplishments. And I don't really consider them as mine. They're just these amazing individuals. And I, we feel like we're their guardians. And um, it's been such an amazing process of self-correction and reflection. Um, earlier, Dean was talking about the importance of anxiety management during childhood. and. Um, no matter how many books you read, no matter what scientific papers you read about and how much you know about how the brain works, when it comes to the application of that knowledge, it's it's a whole new experience. So it's been a growing period for the for both of us as yes. well while yeah. raising these kids. No, it's, it's a challenge even now. I mean, um, expectations. So I say sometimes bombastically that the secret to life is management of expectations but it's micro expectations, mm. minute by minute expectations from, uh, so early on, it wasn't about <clears throat> them following the curriculum, throwing things in front of them. I mean, the, the shower curtain was the periodic table and the wall was the map. And the, so throwing in front of them and seeing what, which proclivities, uh -huh. and then you build around that and build around that small micro, almost like, um, um, uh, you know, Skinner's uh, reinforcements. So you saw a little bit of improvement here or attention and then you you moved it along, more moved it along. And then before you knew it, I mean, Alex had, uh, so one of the, his proclivities early on was, and it doesn't matter what it is, if you find that little nidus, it just grows and was memorizing uh, capitals of, uh, so by two and a half, three. Right. He had memorized, and we have video, 
memorize all of the world's capitals, all the state's capitals. And I couldn't even, <laughs> I, I'm terrible. Yeah, like, okay. Antananarivo. Uh -huh. Antananarivo, remember? Yeah, yeah. I'm, so, I mean, you would show him a shape and he would say, oh, this is this country and the cap. No, oh. I remember when we used to go to a restaurant and, you know, we would, they would bring some chips and salsa or some bread. Uh -huh. And he would take a chip and bite it off. And then he would look at it. Oh, Molly. I was like, who's Molly, honey? No, country Molly. And he would just take another bite. Like, look, Kenya. Wow. <laughs> so he was just like a visual learner. Uh -huh. It was so amazing to see him absorb yeah. all this information. Again, I, work in progress. Yeah. We have the teenage periods where they get, you know, the frontal lobe and we tell them, there it is. There's the, <laughs> the, 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 the emotional brain taking over. But reality is, um, I think, and it's not because of us or, it, I mean, the potential of human brain, I mean, mm -hmm. 87 billion neurons. We're talking about each of them making a couple of connections or 15,000 to 30,000 connections, one quadrillion connections, one times 10 to the 50th power. Now, the answer to that is not sit down and memorize. That's, that's the worst thing. Mm -hmm. you, you narrow the funnel to a point. Yeah, you push through that funnel, they'll get through, they'll get to the college, maybe even Ivy League, but you've just killed all the 360 degrees of potential and, and uh, creativity. Mm -hmm. The answer I think, and we might be wrong, is throwing and systematically seeing where the proclivities and reinforcing proclivities. Right. Takes a lot of work, but the human brain is absolutely remarkable, which speaks to both ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. from aging brain, which we are actually under, we're, we're deal, we keep talking about avoiding disease. I'm talking about profound growth of cognitive capacity well into our 60s, 70s, 80s and beyond. Uh, and then for children, the brain is growing so fast and the best argument on the internet is, oh, are they choline deficient because they're not getting, you know, AIDS right. or something? Are you kidding? Right. Yeah. So did you did you guys homeschool your kids or how did you navigate the educational system to prevent them from, you know, the best parts of them getting hammered out? It was challenging, um, especially because um, when I was, when I had Sophie, I had just started my residency program. So it was a very intense time. Um, and we explored different schools, different systems. They did very well initially for a few years in the Montessori system, which was kind of aligned with what we wanted them to be exposed to, mm -hmm. you know, um, thrown in an environment to see what works for them and have, have the option of absorbing oneself in one subject at a time rather than, you know, having a couple of hours each and every subject every day. Just the mind doesn't really work that way. Um, and after a while, we saw that the um, the speed with which they were learning was probably inhibiting them to be creative in that environment. And there were a couple of stories um, where, you know, the kids didn't feel very comfortable expressing their creativity and their knowledge because mm -hmm. of the peer pressure, because of just the general setting. And when we realized that, I think Dean is fearless. I mean, he's way more fearless than I am. He said, no, I think we should withdraw right now and we should create an environment for them at home. And we were traveling quite a bit too. Um, I was, um, I actually got into a fellowship program at Columbia University. So I was going back and forth between home and New York. And we wanted the kids to have a constant uh, creative uh, environment. And so we homeschooled them. And my mother helped, um, his mother helped. We had a really good system going. And before we knew it, the kids were, and this is not just, you know, bragging about them. It was just a, 
an amazing example of how the brain works, where they would just, you know, go deep into a subject and progress so much into it that a point came where we weren't able to help them with their homework anymore. For example, Alex went to algebra and then went to calculus. Sophie Mm. was so far in linguistics, we were just amazed. And so um, we quickly understood that the conventional model doesn't help, doesn't help at all. And um, they took their SETs and they did very, very well. And we were seeking for <laughs> how, our program how, wait, to keep them busy. How old were they when they did the SATs? They were 10. <laughs> they, both, they both did the... I remember okay. we, um, we went to the... Um, uh, was it the Beverly, Beverly Hills? Hills? Beverly yeah. Hills High Bever- School. Beverly Hills uh-huh, High School. Things. We were living in uh, Beverly Hills in Los Angeles then. And a day before the exam, we took Alex up the stairs and we went to the hallway because he was little. And we wanted him to see the visualize. environment and visualize yeah. and sit on the chair. And we were just waiting the hallway for him. And we were so scared. Yeah. Said, you know, we hope that he doesn't feel um, uncomfortable. And I remember the chair was so tall for him that he decided to stand and write on the chair. But um, all in all, he he just aced it wow. and it was wonderful. I feel bad for the kids that were flanking him on each side, <laughs> looking at a 10-year-old taking the test next to them. The, 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 the no. thing is, I mean, it's not about so much them get, getting high school at 10 or the, uh, it's about, our, it's, it's not even about school or college. I mean, I, we're, I think we're the only parents, although they're in Caltech, Cal State uh, LA right now, it has a special program mm-hmm. called mm-hmm. EAP. Uh, we, we tell them, you know, if you drop out of college, it doesn't matter to us. Yeah. I mean, for somebody, you know, my cousins say that we have more degrees than a thermostat. <laughs> it was useless, all of them. It, it's not about that. It's about creativity. It's about this incredible potential of the brain being a lot, um, often college, and I, I might get pushed back mm-hmm. on this, actually kills creativity. Mm-hmm. These narrow hallways of thought can absolutely demolish creativity. So it's not a, even about high school finish, uh, finishing a high school early or college. Or grades, what can you do matter. to bring this incredible potential of the brain to its full fruition? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the goal. Yeah, and creating uh, a love of learning, yes. of lifelong learning. And there is something to touch on something you said a, a second ago, Aisha, about um, about depth versus breadth. Like the idea of taking one subject and just immersing yourself in it and going all the way to the end, right? Yeah. And learning it as you go, where you're it's so it's so 360 degrees that you really learn it as opposed to catching the major concepts and then constantly switching gears in between subjects and really just hitting the surface level of everything to check a box on on a test. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. We've, we've witnessed it uh, <clears throat> firsthand with the kids where um, whatever subject it was, uh, we would just allow them to immerse themselves in that subject. And it becomes a part and parcel of your fiber eventually. Mm-hmm. I remember when Sophie was into social sciences, she was into social sciences for three months straight. And then we went to, where did we go? We, we went to Santa Barbara to show her the, the missions. And she was learning about the California missions and the history of Spain and how they came to the, to the Americas. And it was just three months of complete immersive experience into that. And mm. I think it, it, it it really becomes a part of your experience right. as a person, as right. who you yeah, are. Yeah, you're not gonna forget that. No, yeah. not right. at all. Amazing. Yeah. Um, all right, well, I think it would be worth taking a few mo- moments to just uh, 
um, share a little bit about what you do and your experience. I mean, as I said earlier, you were on the show a couple of years ago, but there's a lot of new listeners and viewers. And um, I think it would be helpful in terms of contextualizing everything that we're gonna talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So we're both neurologists, husband and wife. Um, we initially started in this field and this in this journey because we were affected by an experience with our grandparents um, who went through uh, Alzheimer's disease and they experienced it. And I remember the first conversation Dean and I had, we met in Afghanistan, by the way, when he was there from the World Bank, um, changing the healthcare system uh -huh. in that country. And I was in medical school and I volunteered with Doctors Without Borders. And because I'm a polyglot, I speak many languages. Um, they would hire me and have me go to um, the harems in different villages to talk to women about um, health care and uh, child care and uh, prevention, so on and so forth. So we met at a party and the first conversation we had was about our grandparents and he has- she came, sat next to me. Right, this that, is a very cinematic meet cute out of like a rom-com, right? <laughs> <It was, it laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. tell you the true version. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, but I was I was amazed at him with all the amazing uh, community work that he was doing, which is a whole another story. Um, and we talked about our grandparents, and um, we were just so amazed at how these incredible human beings, our heroes, intelligent, um, uh, just amazing humans, lost parts and parcels of themselves um, to the point where they couldn't recognize their children, they couldn't recognize their grandchildren. And these giants of human beings were just limited to mm. nothingness. And we wanted to study it. We actually went into the field thinking that hopefully we'll be a part of finding a treatment for diseases of the brain like dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, and it just kind of started from there. Absolutely. Um, the first meeting, um, we, we 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 talked about that, man, and we were kind of blown away that these these people with this kind of mind capacity would actually succumb to Alzheimer's, and and so we came back to UCSD, which was the main dementia number one neuroscience program, at, with Leon Thal, and who was a giant, and we we worked in his clinic and his lab. Aisha did some amazing work with the fMRIs and published mm -hmm. there, and quickly we realized that study after study after study is failing. Mm -hmm. The mouse models would work. Those poor mice, thousands upon thousands, you know, you throw blueberry at mice, they will get better. I mean, every day you see a publication, you know, this drug work. And then when you look, it's a mouse model. It never translates to humans. So around the same time, we looked at some other people's work and we said, we got to find a different path. And um, we had a conversation. We are risk takers. And we said, we're going to go to Loma Linda because most of the lifestyle stuff that were coming to us, uh, the work that Elizabeth Barrett Connor and others were doing, which we were working with, was congruent with Loma Linda, which is a Seventh-day Adventist institution where they've shown lifestyle has profound effect on brain health. Mm -hmm. So it was 60 miles away or 80 miles away. Right. We called, I, like I cold called the, 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 the dean of the university. I said, you know, I'm coming from UCSD. Can I start a brain, initiative, a brain center here? They said, absolutely. We went in and started a, Brain Health Institute, 
Uh, Aisha did double fellowship, double residency, preventive and neurology. Yeah, I went to preventive medicine. Right. I think I think you and I coined the term preventive neurology. Um, and that's what our focus has been, mm-hmm. prevention of neurological diseases. Mm-hmm. And what we found was remarkable here. So here in Loma Linda, not Loma Linda, the Seventh-day Adventist part of Loma Linda, which is about the third of the population, you have the healthiest people in the world. There's no question of that. The data is fairly clear. Nobody's contesting that fact. Five miles away, across 10, you have San Bernardino, one of the unhealthiest places. So it's not environment. It's not even socioeconomic and racial. There's a little bit of socioeconomic. It is, it is the most important thing in public health, access. Access to information, access to resources, access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. There's a huge disparity. Where a Seventh-day Adventist are health-centered from the religion perspective and everything. In San Bernardino, we work in free clinic, even now, half a day a week, we work there. 40-year-olds with stroke by the dozens right. we see. Right. I mean, that much disparity. So we uh, started shifting and working and doing research, quite a bit of publication. And uh, we, we, we realized that um, uh, Alzheimer's, stroke, dementias can be prevented. And initially when we came out like 10 years ago, incredible pushback. Mm-hmm. Whereas two years ago, right. we were at a, you know, Alzheimer's International Conference, and the big plenary talk, big sign was prevention is the new treatment. It was right. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Yes. I don't think we ever high-fived in a conference, but we were just so happy that finally they're they're recognizing the importance right. of lifestyle. Yeah. How many practitioners are there in neurology right now that have a prevent a preventive focus? Goodness, um, I don't I don't know if many. We don't know. Preventive neurology. I don't know. There is. Hopefully there's going to be more. Hopefully there's going to be more. Big speech from somebody, but not so many people doing it other than you guys. And it is interesting. Like when you started, uh, it was considered career suicide. It was. And to, you know, plant your roots in, in Loma Linda, which, you know, for people who don't know, that's one of the blue zones. People live very long there. They tend to have happier, more fulfilling lives. And that's attributable to their faith community. Um, their fidelity to healthy lifestyle, uh, exercise, predominantly a, a plant-based diet there mm-hmm. for the most part, all of these things contributing to um, not only living longer, but as you immediately begin to see uh, better better brain health. And what makes it so amazing, almost like this perfect Petri dish for the studies that you do is that disparity because the community just outside you know, the sort of boundaries of, of that Seventh-day Adventist community is, you know, a, an impoverished, lower socioeconomic situation of people that don't have access to all of those things. I yeah. just repeated everything you said, but, no, no. Um, no. but that makes for, you know, uh, a, you know a, a ripe environment for doing the kind of work that you do to kind of A-B test. Yes, mm-hmm. these populations. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, we've learned so much um, about this concept. Um, and one of the things that stands out is is all about access. Um, access not only to, um, to healthy factors, healthy lifestyle factors, whether it's food and opportunity to move naturally or stress management, so on and so forth, but access to information and access to resources to apply that in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, to have health as a part of your language every single day where you see left and right and front behind you, there's health everywhere. 
that is what differentiates between two communities. You know, when, when the Seventh-day Adventists, like Dean said, it's a part of their religion when they walk, when they speak, when they wake up in the morning, when they go to bed, when they interact, the, the core uh, structure behind their action is, um, the outcome is, is good health. Mm. The outcome is preservation of the mind and the body. But when you veer away and, five miles across Highway 10 into San Bernardino, it's almost as if people are completely blind to that concept that it is possible for them to be the best versions of themselves. Mm -hmm. And you see this, their lives just moving forward like automatons, not really aware of how bad their lifestyle factors are and how destructive it can be to their health. Mm. And it's not a judgment. I mean, no, we wanna make course. sure that we, <clears throat> it's, it's situation. I mean, all of us get caught up in the in the cycle, especially when when you have to work continuously. The closest healthy food resources twenty miles away. Right. Uh, so it's uh, so with that in mind. Initially, we went to Cedar Sinai as the director of the brain health uh, program there, um, uh, prevention, and and then an opportunity arose where in beach cities, which is Manhattan Beach, Redondo Beach, Hermosa Beach. They had this program that Dan Butner, our friend Dan, right. had started. Yeah, it's one of Redondo's, one zones. of the Blue Zone cities, <clears throat> That's right? That's right. Yes. 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 A created Blue Zone. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had done such an amazing job as far as making it a lived concept that they offered us the, uh, uh, the option of coming there and creating an initiative, brain health initiative, and also the largest research protocol in the country, community based. So we left everything again, risk taking, who leaves <laughs> right. Cedar Sinai, one day of clinic yeah. for Hollywood crowd. You're insane. We, yeah, <laughs> but it's been, uh, so since the two years that we talked, we've been actually growing that program. It is, there are, there are other studies like Pointer and others that are doing clinical research on lifestyle and, and brain health, but it's again, more of a laboratory kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. This is a lived concept. I think we don't need to, we don't need to recreate no. uh, whether, you know, what is it, broccoli works, <laughs> Versus, uh, um, uh, you know, beef jerky. We know. Yeah, I think I think than... we we know that already. Yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> there's enough information. I don't know. There's some people that are confused about that. <laughs> there, are, yeah. There's yeah. always going to be noise. There's always going to be people who are going to say the Earth is flat. Mm -hmm. We'll leave them at that. You know, they can uh, they can go to the edge, but <laughs> but it's it's critical that we move on and apply it not to these contrived clinical trials of a hundred people over six months or a year, to real communities. So we're doing three of the largest pro projects in the country, but it's a lived model of brain health yeah. and collecting data mm -hmm. and collecting brain health and information. Yeah, and we're right. really excited about that because I think um, one of the things that, um, what one of the things that failed in most studies is um, again, um, not understanding what works for at an individual level and at the community level. Mm -hmm. um, I think if, if we find out specifically uh, what the limitations and what the strengths are in any community, and then find resources around them in their environment that would help them create a vector towards better health, that's the key. And it has to be long enough where they have support, where they have contact with the human experience of speaking with someone else or being around a supportive group to um, acclimate to that new mm -hmm. healthful environment, yeah. it sticks. Otherwise, it's just me giving someone a brochure and say, 
broccoli's good for right, you. Right, right. I mean, that that's that's a play right out of Dan Buettner's playbook, which is you have to create the environment that's conducive to the healthy choice. So then it becomes rote as opposed to some sort of burden or something that somebody has to think about in order to do, right? Yeah. It's just there in front of them. And, you know, the kind of resources of the community are pushing you into the correct lane. Right, right. And especially for a condition like cognitive decline, which is it's just tremendous, it's scary. I mean, you know, everybody talks about Alzheimer's and dementia as if it's a disease that just starts at one point. Mm -hmm. You know, you are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease there. That's it. That's not the start. Right before that, you know, decades earlier, there is a continuous cognitive decline that people experience. And, you know, Dean and I go to different communities for talks and before all this uh, pandemic. Uh, when you go into a communities where, you know, their, their health literacy is low, or for example, they haven't had any resources, you actually experience the cognitive decline when speaking with individuals in their 50s and 60s before they even are diagnosed with Alzheimer's mm. disease and it's it's scary and the numbers are scary and we never address that and it's not just brain health you know you, you you hear about brain health all the time you hear you you read great books but it's that self that is under attack it's that um us it's that usness you know it's it's the sense of um uh, being aware and being present and being able to uh, experience life. That is, we're being robbed of that. Mm. Um, you hear brain fog, you hear memory problems, but not being able to be present for each and every moment in your life, that's what's taken away from people. And that's yeah. scary. And if we have a way of making people attuned where we alarm them that, listen, there is something that you can do where you don't have to go through this. I think that would be a great uh, opportunity. And it's a great gift for us to be able to serve people that way. Right. So conventional medical wisdom, at least until recently is or was that Alzheimer's is something that is going to be visited <clears throat> upon many, many people when they reach, I don't know, late 60s, 70s, mm -hmm. something like that. It's basically a genetic predisposition. Um, in more cases than not, it's a death sentence. There's not much we can do about it. We can't cure it. Um, we can't prevent it. Uh, we can kind of maybe manage it with some drugs, but really there isn't much that we can do. And we're working on a cure, but we aren't very close. Mm -hmm. So how much of that is accurate and where does your work fit in to kind of upend that paradigm? Uh, so the genetic component, let's start with that. Uh, we know the genes that are involved in Alzheimer's um, with new techniques like GWAS analysis and others where you take large populations who have Alzheimer's and those that don't, you look at the genetic differences, we know about more than 30 genes that are involved in Alzheimer's. Of all Alzheimer's cases, the percentage that's driven by genes, 100% driven by genes, meaning that if they have these genes, they will get it. And in and, 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 uh, genetic uh, terms, it's called 100% penetrance, uh, like Huntington's disease. Mm -hmm. If a person has the Huntington gene on that chromosome four, they'll get it. Right. But the percentage of Alzheimer's cases are, that are like that is only up to 3%. The other 97% are affected by genes, but they're, they are only risk genes, mm -hmm. meaning that those genes increase your risk, but they're not a foregone conclusion. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that you will get it. 
the, the next highest risk gene is ApoE4. About 2% uh, of population has ApoE4, is ApoE4 positive. So if you have one of those genes coming from one parent, your risk goes up four times. Hmm. If you have two, one from each parent, about 12 times. That number varies, but roughly those are the numbers. So even if you have two genes fully loaded with these bad genes, 50% of people get the disease. The other 50% don't get it. Why? And when you look at the data coming from Nigeria where the population had higher proclivity for APOE, when they came to US, the disease went up. When you look at the studies that came from UK, which lifestyle increased your risk six times, even in lieu of APOE4, you realize mm. even with the higher genetic risk of APOE4, lifestyle is a way bigger factor by far. Mm. So all of the genes involved in Alzheimer's, except for those 3% or three genes, are all our lifestyle genes, how your lifestyle affects those genes, which means you have control over it. Even the most benign studies, the ones that had minimal effect, the MIND study and others. MIND study just looked at diet, very well done study. Just a, a diet adjustment reduced your risk of Alzheimer's by 53%. Wow. And that was mm -hmm. a watered down version of the diet we think is optimal. Uh, and how, how, how long would you need to be you know, eating, in, eating in that certain way leading up to it? It varies from person yeah. to person, their, their background, other things like if they had multiple head traumas, uh, childbirth, like multiple variables. Mm -hmm. But in reality, if you're on that diet for several years, you continually reduce your risk. Like smoking, if you've smoked all your life and if you come off of smoking, come off of that bacon, come off of that, uh, you know, yeah. uh, well, let's, then the more years you pass, I believe in smoking, it's after five years. Five to seven years, Five yes. to seven years, you're mm -hmm. back to baseline. Right. Mm -hmm. Meaning that you're back to the lowest risk factor. Um, so the longer you stay on a healthy lifestyle, which is exercise and, and all the things that we say, and especially if you do all of them, the reason I say all of them, let's, coming back to our grandparents, mm -hmm. one of the elements is cognitive reserve or what the term you and I love, idea density. You know, we say that if we have a, a musical band that's gonna be called Idea Density. Yeah. They had Idea <laughs> like Density, that. yes. It's a great, great um, uh, concept. They both, both our grandparents had immense idea density and, and philosophers, thinkers, but they succumbed to Alzheimer's. Why? The other elements weren't taken care of. They had diabetes, cholesterol, high yeah, blood pressure, quite horrible sedentary, food. Mm. bad food. Mm -hmm. Didn't yeah. exercise, philosophers are not supposed to exercise for some yeah. reason, but so you have to do all of it. Right. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care 
tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So we're going to get into these lifestyle interventions, but before we do that, let's talk about the brain more generally. Um, We sort of think of the brain as this mysterious black box Mm -hmm. that is unknowable and something that sits outside of our body, right? Like there's our body and then there's our brain and these things don't really overlap. But in truth, brain health is really, uh, it's about vascular health in the same way that heart health is, right? Like we're dealing with, I don't know how many zillions of, of you know arteries that are going into, yeah. going into the brain you know per, you know putting things into your brain and taking them out etc um and and when you think about you know heart disease we we all know we're trying to not have plaque in our arteries and keep those pipes running clean mm-hmm. and brain health is really not that different is right. it that's very true now you put, you put it beautifully um, when, when you look at the brain, it's about three pounds, it's like jello. It's like hard jello when you hold it in your hands. And it's about 2% of your body's energy. And when you look at 
that the tissues and the vessels, they're the same vessels that are in your heart and in your mm. kidney and your body. I'm a vascular neurologist, so I teach a lot of anatomy to medical students and residents about the vasculature of the brain. But basically, you know, you have arteries shooting from your heart going through the neck. There's two major ones in the front, the carotid arteries and the vertebral arteries. And these are the major vessels that take blood to your brain. And there's just branching of these arteries. And somebody actually calculated this, but if you put the vessels uh, in your brain end to end, it would span about 400 miles. Uh So just imagine all these tiny hairline arteries taking in oxygen and nutrients to these susceptible areas of the brain for this this incredible organ, organ to function. And at any moment, our brain as little and as small as it is, it can consume up to 25% of the body's energy. So just imagine the amount of work that it does. And if we don't address vascular health, and if we don't really take care of it, it, it will succumb to disease. You know, we, we always say, and our cardiologist friends don't really like that, but we say the rest of the body is there to carry the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it essentially comes down to the same pathological processes that affect the brain that also affects the heart, the kidneys and the other systems as well. In fact, recently there was a publication by Dr. Hachinsky from Canada uh, and he summarized the concepts, but uh, the vascular factors actually predate, you know, the the popular thing that we hear amyloid plaque and Mm -hmm. tangle. Vascular pathology predates those things. Uh, With the newer tools, with newer, more sophisticated MRIs, you can see 20 years earlier when somebody starts having some pathology. And the microvascular disease started way earlier. So if we take that into consideration that in your 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, you know, the things you do isn't gonna just avoid Alzheimer's. And we think absolutely for a great majority, 90% plus, you can avoid Alzheimer's. But more importantly, sustain cognitive capacity and grow cognitive capacity. Um, <clears throat> We, we know that our, we don't use the full potential of the brain. And in fact, as we get older, one of the areas that's affected the most is focus for two reasons. One is the focus center shrinks, as well as the fact that we're overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Multitasking, which we say, there's no such thing as multitasking, it's doing multiple things badly. Right. It just yeah, accumulates yeah. and accumulates. But if you manage and control focus, you can actually grow your cognitive capacity as you get older. That's our goal because if you do that, if we've addressed the, this is critical, if we address the vascular factors and the fact that we can grow the brain, we can hit all these communities that are now devastated with cognitive decline. Mm. And we see them all the time. Right, so neuroplasticity then becomes a function of vascular health. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Super interesting. Um, When we think of, again, back to the, uh, the kind of heart analogy, we think of uh, plaque buildup um, in terms of deteriorating heart health. With with brain health, it's amyloid plaque, right? Which is different, but kind of the same. Like it's blocking these passageways, and that's ultimately what leads to stroke. Correct. Is that right? Uh, so uh, no, uh, with stroke, it's it's uh, atherosclerotic plaques. It's different. Amyloid actually accumulates outside of the neurons and stops the communication between the neurons. So it's a little it's different. In between the neurons. In between neurons. Right, okay. The, the neurofibrillary tangles, which is the tau, is inside the cells. There are two things happen. One is the amyloid plaques and the neurofibrillary tangles. They're connected in many ways. We are learning more and more. The neurofibrillary tangles are really interesting. There are these 
scaffoldings that hold the microtubules inside the cell steady. Mm -hmm. The microtubules are, it's, it's almost like uh, we're doing, we just got the uh, uh, Oculus and we, I was right. doing the, um, uh, and it's a crazy thing. We were doing the, uh, the roller coaster thing. And you see this roller coaster throughout the, the planet. Go, and the microtubules are these pipelines throughout the cell for transport, for structure and everything. And the tau molecules hold them together. All of a sudden, they get phosphorylated and they come off. And then you see these scaffoldings fall apart mm. and clog together. So for, for many years, we've thought that that's a separate process. It's a genetic proclivity. And there is, there are those 3% variety. But we know that inflammation also attributes to that. Multiple traumas to the head, infections, multiple pathways to trauma, oral hygiene and all mm -hmm. of that, as well as vascular <laughs> factors. So wait a second. So if vascular factors and inflammatory factors are contributing to even those tau and amyloid, factors. We have control over those. Right, right. Yeah, so um, that's amazing. Yeah. Like just, just, just the realization that we do have some domain over this thing that we've always kind of thought of as just looming out in the distance and it's either gonna happen or it's not gonna happen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Just understanding that our day-to-day -day habits affect those small little arteries in our brain, you know, um, when when you when you have sustained um, damage to the arteries or sustained attack, let's just say you know an, an attack to the system. So the body and the brain, especially, is constantly trying to revert any damage. You know we have damage control mode and we have a thrive mode, and and the goal is to be more in the thrive mode rather than damage control. Mm -hmm. And the damage comes from, say for example, vascular damage comes from sustained high blood pressure. You know, blood pressure is one of the most important risk factors for so many chronic diseases that we're dealing with. When we have uncontrolled blood pressure, the small blood vessels in our brains, they essentially collapse on themselves. And on MRIs, what we see is these patterns called white matter disease. White matter disease is when there is damage to the blood vessels. And so those parts of the brain are inflamed or they don't really mm -hmm. function very well. A lot of times they were called non-specific white matter disease, but we're actually learning more and more about them. And they have been correlated with cognitive decline. They've been correlated with uh, strokes. And we know that lifestyle factors can, can really alter them, can change them. Diabetes is another risk factor. Damage to the inner linings of the arteries can cause damage. And, you know, there are parts of the brain that require, well, all parts of the brain, but specifically the ones that are responsible for, say, for example, encoding memory, the hippocampi or the frontal lobe where the judgment sits or, or the emotion centers. When, they, when the damage, when the blood vessels are damaged in these areas, we really can't function anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's when you see cognitive decline. Mm. It's interesting with blood pressure, you know, that's something that you get checked, you know, I don't know, you know once, I mean, when you're younger, barely ever, when you go to the doctor for your checkup, but it feels like something that should be monitored much more regularly and oh, closely. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because it's a variability in high blood pressure that matters uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited about, you know, new technology coming up, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, the watches or, you know, any wearable devices that can give um, just a quick update on how someone is doing a live update. Right. I think that's the most important thing. You can't really wait for every three months or every year to get your blood pressure checked. Yeah. We see people in their forties and fifties coming in with 
extremely high blood pressure and we have to like treat it rapidly with medication to prevent strokes and damage to their body. It's mm. um, it's quite ubiquitous. Mm. Before we get into the, the lifestyle interventions, I wanna talk about this neuro paradigm that you guys have come up with. Um, perhaps it would be good to differentiate between cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's, and strokes. Like, mm-hmm. let's let's get clear on like the different with the difference between all of these terminology. Things. Yeah. So, <clears throat> dementia is the umbrella category, and dementia is the the rough definition of it is when a person is having cognitive decline to the extent where they can't do some of their activities they could do before. Not because of physical limitation, because of cognitive limitation, be it memory or processing capacity or things of that nature. For example, if they could drive before, now they're having difficulty driving because they can't think their way through the the, the directions. Uh, If they could take care of their medications, they can't take care of their medications now. If they were doing the finances, they can't take care of the finances. You have to be careful there because as we get older, without knowing you kind of pass off your activities to others. And when you ask the family, oh, I don't know, I, I don't see a difference, but what happened is over time that, that responsibility was passed on. But when you truly check them, they've had loss of capacity. That's dementia. It's an umbrella category. <clears throat> Alzheimer's is a subtype of that dementia. It's a major one. 60 to 70% of all Alzheimer's uh, dementias is Alzheimer's, but there are other types of dementia, such as frontotemporal lobe dementia, Lewy body dementia, vascular dementia, Parkinson's dementia, and many others, Huntington's dementia. But Alzheimer's is the biggest one. They manifest differently and the causes are somewhat different. Although we think that all of them are affected to different degrees by lifestyle. Some of them are more genetically driven. Like frontotemporal lobe dementia is more Mm -hmm. genetically driven. That dementia is early in life. Uh, Sometimes it affects language. So like primary progressive aphasia, the person can think, but their language is affected disproportionately early on. Lewy body dementia is more movement and hallucinations and visual spatial changes. And it's a different pathway. It's a synuclein body. It's a different kind of protein. Alzheimer's, and this is something that everybody's familiar with. I'm going to say it, but I want to <laughs> state it ahead of time. Don't be scared. We all have some of this. Where short-term memory early on is disproportionately affected compared to long-term memory. So a lot of, especially men, they say, oh, I'm fine. Dean, I'm fine. I can remember 50 years back when I was in, you know, and, but I just, you know, I'm having difficulty with breakfast. Well, that's what's happening. Right. The short-term memory, which is in the hippocampus is affected disproportionately. And it's the fastest growing epidemic, well, outside of COVID now <clears throat> in the West. We're talking about about 6 million individuals in US, 35 million worldwide. And this number, we have to re we have to change the number every time we yeah, talk. Every time mm-hmm. we have a PowerPoint presentation, we have to change these numbers, unfortunately. Right. I read recently 47 million people worldwide. Worldwide, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to change it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and estimates are that it's projected to triple by 2050. It, yes. It is. Yes. And, and the so worst, everybody's going to be impacted. Everybody. Yeah. In fact, even now, if you, if you ask families, um, well, I did my PhD thesis around. Uh, 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 community-based part, uh, re- participatory research in the, in the uh, minority populations. Mm-hmm. And, and, and those populations or in the low socioeconomic populations, every family has been affected, but they haven't called it dementia or Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how ubiquitous it is right. already. Now, the numbers as far as cost is even, 
I mean, it's, uh, the human component is incredibly bad because it's affecting everybody. And, and we'll talk about what, what COVID did this in the tsunami. Uh, they, this population was the most affected population in the world, the Alzheimer's population. But the cost, uh, the second costliest disease is heart disease at 120 billion, cancers, 70 billion combined. Alzheimer's, direct cost, 305 billion, indirect cost, 240 billion right now. And it's climbing up to 1.1 to $3 trillion direct and indirect by 2050, which will collapse our system altogether. Yeah, the system's already broken. It can't bear <laughs> that kind of load. It but can. is that is that excessive cost attributable to the slow burn nature of this and the extent to which kind of live-in care is required for these people to live their lives or where is all that money going? It's sad, it's it's going, well, the direct cost is going to Medicare medications, which really mm. don't do much. Not even the pharmaceutical companies claim that Aricept and Amanda reverse or slow down the disease, it doesn't. They're just symptomatic. The disease is continuing, it's just doing a little bit of help with the symptomatics. But a lot of money spent there in care, nursing home and others. The indirect cost is, you should see the people, the families that can afford it the least have to stay home to take care of the loved ones, right. which means hours lost, income. work lost, and, and all of that that happens with right, it. Right, right, devastating. And on top of that, we have COVID right now and COVID is, is really <clears throat> drastically impacting the Alzheimer's community, right? Like I, just, I saw on Twitter like two days ago, there was a Barron's article about this that was like trending, you know, that mm -hmm. what does the future of Alzheimer's look like? And I know that you guys have, have, have spoken about this. Um, what is it about COVID that's disproportionately impacting the Alzheimer's community in such a, in such a bad way? It's a, it's a multifactorial, um, like Dean said. Um, I mean, the numbers are scary. We were, uh, we were actually reading an article the other day and um, Alzheimer's patients are dying faster, not because of the infection or COVID related consequences, but because of their disease. I think the number was 16% mm -hmm. higher mm. rate of mortality in that population. And um, it has to do with um, loneliness, disconnection, um, isolation. isolation from human experience. Um, and, you know, the brain is hungry for information and for connection. And when that withers away, when that's withdrawn, um, you see patients succumb to Alzheimer's disease. And there's so many stories that we could tell you from our clinic and just talking with some of the caregivers where these lovely patients are completely isolated in a nursing home and they don't see their children or their loved ones. And um, the mind is such where if they don't get that conversation, even a phone call or, uh, uh, you know, it's a mundane conversation about food or clothes or just a normal walk in the park, um, the, 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 basically the brain just completely withdraws and withers mm -hmm. away and there's profound um, changes in a decline in their cognition to the point where um, they forget to do their basic uh, activities of daily living. They forget to eat, they forget to um, take care of themselves and slowly and gradually that uh, that causes um, disease and death. And, and we've seen that so many times, unfortunately, mm -hmm. more than we would wish to see. Um, and, and this is a population that's most vulnerable. Right, yeah. right. Uh, anxiety, I say, <clears throat> you and I, Aisha and I, we treat anxiety more than we treat the memory component 
because it's a quality of life issue, isn't it? I mean, um, and, 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 and patients with Alzheimer's, anxiety is ubiquitous and rapidly growing. I, I, and I give an analogy like, and it's not, and a patient with Alzheimer's initially feels like they're in their basement, now living in their basement, not really, but that, that discomfort. Then in the neighbor's home, then in a different city, then in a different country, then ultimately mm-hmm. in Mars with Martians coming because nobody's right. familiar. That anxiety compounded with loneliness, with isolation, with separation is what forces the brain to actually collapse upon itself. Um, we think that the main the reason for the greater mortality is not so much that because they were in closed environments, therefore they suffered from, from COVID, but because of the greater loneliness in the population that could afford that the least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've had some personal experience with with people that are are suffering from Alzheimer's. And my sense, and this is just purely like anecdotal is, well, first of all, you can, you can read the anxiety coming a million miles away. Like mm. you can tell these people are not settled in, in who they are, that there's some confusion. And what I see more often than not is almost like a veneer of, of denial or, or an effort to like comport themselves as if they know what's going on, like out of fear that somebody might know that something's amiss or awry. And I'm often left wondering like, what is the level of self-awareness that this person, this patient has about the nature of their condition? Like, are they aware that they're suffering and they're actively trying to put up a front or is this something that just occurs with this disease, like what is their interior experience of what's Mm -hmm. happening? It's tough to know because it varies, but it's the fight or flight, isn't it? So, I mean, I've seen this repeatedly. Um, Your your autonomic manifestation and behavior is fight or flight. And my grandmother was a powerful woman. And I actually, in the last years of her life, I actually shared the room with her. And being a stupid teenager, I didn't appreciate that that, that experience, which was, Profound and important, and I should have been more aware. And uh, but um, but that that's uh, she this part this person that would face you would talk to you with clear language because she was she knew that that in order to be in a world of men she had learned very early on to be very succinct and clear. She started turning away from the world, so the withdrawal. So mm-hmm. you see a lot of people just withdrawing, not being as involved, not be. And in her case, she actually turned around towards the wall. She would actually start facing the wall. That's a withdrawal, push. The others push away the fight. And, and it's not, a, not, often it's not a conscious awareness that something is wrong. It's a discomfort that manifests in those two outcomes. Hmm. And, and if people are aware of that, then you realize that, and, and that's why a lot of bad interpersonal relationships early on because people don't know that the Alzheimer's is coming and the manifestation is this behavior and all uh, and, and turns out really bad. And with my grandmother, it was that, mm-hmm. it was the withdrawal. But a lot of people actually then have this pushback. Right. Pushback, which is the discomfort. Discomfort, something is wrong. And the only tool I have is pushing back. Right, get away and let me, leave me be, yeah. right? And yeah. what is the appropriate response? like? I'm sure you've seen all kinds of different dynamics with how people interact with somebody who's suffering. Is there, have you come upon an appropriate kind of way of interacting with somebody who's in this space that's more productive than other ways? Yeah, I, I, I think again, it it uh, varies. It depends on um, 
the history that the caregiver has had with uh, the patient, uh, the, the individual with Alzheimer's um, and the support structure that they have. But I think one of the most um, helpful things that uh, I have had experience with, with my patients and um, training the caregivers to take care of them is to let them know that it's very important to differentiate between the individual and the disease. They're two separate mm -hmm. things and uh, entities. And, and that, that actually makes everything fall in place because if, say for example, Sally is someone who has Alzheimer's disease and Sally used to be an amazing human being, had her own job, raised a family, fantastic in the community. She sang, she was part of her church, so on and so forth. And slowly she started forgetting things and now she can't do any of those things. So the family and the caregivers should make sure that they remind her of who she was and who she is. Mm -hmm. Those stories of the things that she did are essentially her medicine and her, a reminder of who she is and how she's contributed to this world. And the symptoms of forgetfulness, of making mistakes, of saying strange, inappropriate things or acts that are inappropriate, that's the disease, that's not her. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 that, that mm -hmm. um, resolves some of the anxiety within the patient, uh, with the caregiver. Um, caregivers tend to have this need to fix things. We always wanna fix people. We wanna fix patients. There's no need to fix anything. And, and somehow when you differentiate the two, then that desire to fix goes away and you just focus on the beautiful mm. stories and the memories that th that patient has already had and focusing on the moment. Beautiful. And Dean actually yeah. um, has this beautiful, I love that um, thing that you do with, the, yeah, the islands of consciousness. So uh, my attempt at defining consciousness, if there is such a thing, is um, there are islands of consciousness. So the first island is when you're three years old or so, and you become aware of yourself as separate from the universe, from the world. And then there's the island of the mother and the island of the father and the island of the family and islands of job and so on and so forth. Some of them are more powerful than others. Uh, that's why w the most lovely thing you see is when a, a husband has dementia and they don't recognize anything. And then the wife comes in and you see this, it's almost as if, as if the greatest party in the universe just opened up doors, you know, uh -huh. because that island that this wife is still the island, the central island mm -hmm. that's connected. So uh, can keeping those islands connected early on with cognitive decline is critical, getting rid of the damage, which is the food and the exercise, and also building connections, those billions of connections that we can't create. So we can keep the tethers into the different islands. That's why people remember long-term better than short-term. So one of the things we can do to stabilize, at least for a while, is have 20 great stories from the past yeah. mm. that you've lived those, those experiences. When you went to some island as a family uh, or some, 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 you know, some resort or somewhere um, and you had that enjoyment and he or she remembers it, build on that, you know, even, even embellish it more. You know, and you have those 20 stories the greatest anxiety reducing tool that I've ever given my patients mm -hmm. had nothing to do with a prescription. Although yeah. I write this in prescription actually, is build those 20 stories. And whenever you see the first signs of anxiety, throw that in. Mm. That long-term island, that big island takes over. And I've never seen anything like that where the conversation just goes there and the anxiety just rests. Yeah. And you build on those islands, especially early on, build on those islands of memory 
and connect them further on. And that becomes your best anxiety reducer. You know wow. what's another great island, which actually passes way beyond the loss of language, music. Mm. Repeatedly we've seen where this person can no longer connect with anybody. And now they can't even remember their, their right. partner. You put that one piece of music from the forties or thirties that they loved. And then you see them just moving their fingers to the music and just calming down. So you can build around those islands for the people, that, for the individuals that are more advanced. For those who haven't developed the Alzheimer's is building those connections so that the islands can keep connected. That's where the ultimate consciousness, we believe that consciousness as we define it is when multiple of these islands are connected so you can see a meta version of yourself within the, all these islands. Oh, so you use those stories to create a lattice work or like a matrix that forms the underpinnings of identity and that gets okay, rooted you, in the This person. is not fair. <laughs> all I'm doing is repeating what you said. No, but no. you do it so much better. <laughs> That's no, 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 no. beautifully put. Yeah. All right, well, Absolutely. Nobody, nobody wants to befall this fate, right? And and you know, when we're young and vital, we think we're bulletproof, and this is never going to happen. But these diseases start to take root early in our lives. Um, we don't see the symptoms for many years, so it's all about these habits that we form around diet and lifestyle. So set us up with this, this paradigm that you guys have come up with and we can walk through some of these habits that you guys have realized have been extremely helpful in um, managing symptoms and preventing people from headed down this path. Sure, so not to go into the depth and details of the science, which we could do, and we probably will spend some hours just going into it. But when you look at the basis of the patho pathology that takes place in the brain and the body for that, for that matter is, you know, just a few processes. These are inflammatory processes, oxidation, abnormalities in metabolism of glucose or energy and abnormalities in the metabolism of lipid. These are the four main pathways that cause damage to the vasculature, the blood vessels in the brain, and it causes damage to the neurons and the neural connections as well. And when you look at the mechanism of how these come about, they're very closely linked to your lifestyle. So it has to do with food, uh, with the way you move and exercise, with stress management, with sleep. My goodness, sleep, such an important part of our day. And also how we connect socially, emotionally to our communities. And whether it's, you know, studies coming from, say, for example, in Columbia University, where I trained from the Northern Manhattan study or from the Rush University studies or from the Adventist Health study, different studies from around the world. When you look at the factors that stand out that contribute to better brain health, it's nutrition, it's exercise, it's stress, it's sleep. And the one that we added is cognitive activity. Mm -hmm. So that's the when, O, the optimization. That's right. So, so when yeah. we wrote the first book, we came with this um, um, acronym, NEURO, um, N-E-U-R-O. Of course, it's uh, self-explanatory and it was good because we're neurologists and helped us a lot too. It all but came together. It came together. Yeah. And, um, you know, N is for nutrition, E is for exercise, U is for unwind, which is stress management, not just getting rid of stress, but mm -hmm increasing good stress and getting rid of bad stress. And R is for restorative sleep, deep restorative sleep that helps cleanse the brain and has its own function and optimization of cognitive activity. Right. Um, some of these, if not all of them, 
feel like common sense. Uh, and yet also, I mean, I think the nutrition piece, everybody knows you gotta, if you wanna take care of your body, you gotta eat right, right? right. Sleep, exercise, um, challenging yourself mentally, um, being in a community of people that you're connected to. These are all things that we we kind of intuitively know are good for our health. Um, the nutrition piece, would you say that's, is there one that stands out as more important than the others or do these all work? Just work? Obviously this is a holistic thing, so they're all interconnected, but mm -hmm. Um, if you had to pick one, is that even possible? I don't think it's fair. I guess Can if you don't one? sleep at all and you eat a perfect <laughs> diet, it's not gonna matter. No, no I think it's the <laughs> no. multifaceted nature of this that actually yeah. makes a big difference. And when you look at different communities and individuals as well, you know, they're, they might excel in one thing, but they might be falling behind on others. And I mean, it's understandable. We can't really control everything, but all of them are important. What would you say? No, I, I fully agree with you. Um, I think all of it has to be done. And it's, it's incredibly empowering to know that because every time we say that somebody says, oh, my, you know, my friend did all of it, but no, none of us did all of it. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about living a, uh, let's, I'm not gonna, uh, the food part is, pretty specific. I mean, not, we don't have that many communities that lived in the way that we were talking about. And we'll talk about it, you know, as far as whole food, whole food plant-based. We're talking about exercise, significant exercise. We're not talking about whenever we talk to our patients, they say, oh, I got Dean, I'm fine. I, 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 I do the gardening, I do the uh -huh. walking, no. Or for example, my patients, when they say, oh, I'm, I'm walking all day long from my living room to the kitchen, back to the living room, yes. <laughs> that's not exercise. It's gotta be significant yeah. amount of exercise. Right. And then um, a stress management. It's not about just getting rid of bad stress. By the way, we none of us are doing that well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not just because you meditated. Meditation is phenomenal, but it's gotta be an all day, uh, but also about good stress. One of the things that actually gets people to the dementia stage fastest is what they did throughout their life as far as cognitive activity and challenge. That's profoundly important. Sleep, none of us do sleep well. Just because we took mm -hmm. some medicine, we're talking about a restorative sleep where people go through the circadian, you know, mm -hmm. the, the four phases of sleep, four to five times a night deeply. We invest in incredible resorts. We've been invited to different venues. I say, take that money and, well, we're not gonna tell, put it in, a, in your bedroom. Uh -huh. There's a reason why we're knocked out. Evolutionarily, how would it make sense that you are subject to being mauled by bears and lions for one third of your life, unless it was that important? So yeah. sleep and investing in sleep is profoundly important. Um, we study, we're doing the largest one with the sleep study is shows that 70% increased risk of dementia for those who have bad sleep. Mm -hmm. And then there's optimization, which is challenging mental activity. If you think you retire and you can go lie down on the beach, that's great for a few months. But if you continue, that's going to be the fastest point of decline for mm. cognition. Because if this brain, which is consuming 25% of your body's weight, and realizes, oh, I'm not being used, especially at a time where you're aging, you know what it will do? It will actually shrink more rapidly. Mm -hmm. So all of it has to be done and all of them have to be done together. But the beauty is if they're done and if it's not just a diet du jour or the new resolution run or walk, and if it's lifestyle, and especially if it's lived lifestyle, which is what we're trying to do in communities, we're talking about 90% reduction in Alzheimer's, dementia, stroke, without any biohacking or vitamin du jour or any of that stuff, with regular things you have in your, you know, in your environment. And mm. I think one of the focus of our study, which is, you know, uh, 
the largest community-based study in the country now in beach cities is the applicability of this knowledge. I think we have tremendous amount of information about the kind of diet and the kind of exercises that are good for the brain, um, even stress management, so on and so forth. But what we haven't really focused and what I don't see much of is bridging that gap between the knowledge that we have, the incredible amount of information that we have and how people apply it mm -hmm. at their homes. That's always the trick. It yes. really is, right. it really is. And so I think um, more focus needs to go towards that, the translation yeah. of all this amount of information we have. And people aren't very good at, at estimating or calibrating, you know, how, they, how they're adhering to any of these things anyway. I mean, most people tell you, I exercise, like you were saying, like I exercise or, you know, I, I, I eat pretty good, like, you know, everything in moderation. And, oh, you know, yeah. the, these things are divorced from reality more True. often than not. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my two least favored words in language is motivation and moderation. Motivation is a top-down word that has no denominator. What is that? It's almost like puts pressure on kids. Like if I don't have it all the time, something's wrong with me. I don't have motivation all day. Yeah. I, I, it, it's, it, so <laughs> it's important to operationalize motivation in small successive successes that get you that little dopamine and serotonin release. So it's not about the goal. It's not about a, it's about the process. Mm -hmm. If it's not reduced to process that's in your lived life, and you don't enjoy that process, it, even if you achieve the goal, it then becomes anticlimactic. Okay, I just did this, N now what? Hmm. Oh, I fall down to the baseline. So we have to create environments where the process is the thing in itself. I don't wanna sound like those philosophers. The thing in itself is the process, not the goal, not the diet, not that. So that's where the change has to happen. And then the other word is moderation. Moderation is a word people use to get out of doing things. Let's be honest, you know. <laughs> as soon as you say, say, oh, Dean, it's all about moderation. But you just had four steaks. Mm -hmm. Where's the, what, what part of moderation? I'm not judging people, but, but we have to say, this is the optimal that we know to the best of our knowledge today. And that's where the humility of science comes in. We, you know, people say, but Dean, you just changed your perspective on olive oil. Uh, yeah, because it's not about me. It's not even, it's not even about neuro. You can throw away neuro. It's whatever science gives us and it might, might not be perfect, but it's a methodology that's changeable with, not with people's ideas, but with a process. Mm -hmm. and, and if it changes tomorrow, my ego is not mm -hmm. affected. So we have to kind of move that. And if we do that, I think we, we, can, we can really address this, this calamity, which is cognitive decline, yeah. uh, which is affecting every community we're seeing. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media, this beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries, all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So let's dive into the nutrition piece. Uh, whole food plant-based diet is your preferred protocol here. So of all the, you know, the within the acronym neuro, perhaps that might be the most controversial for, you know, for the average person to get, get their head around. So how did you arrive at this being, you know, the diet that you're recommending? Right. So when you look at uh, different <clears throat> epidemiological studies and even clinical trials um, on diet and brain health, the elements that stand out, they're all plants, you know, whether it's um, studies coming from Northern Manhattan study or Adventist study and all these other epidemiological studies that I mentioned earlier. Um, the, the, the foods that have the most anti-inflammatory agents, that have antioxidants, that have a proper synergistic combination of micronutrients and macronutrients happen to be plants. Um, and, you know, as much as we try to stay away from calling foods superfoods or, you know, good foods and bad foods, there are some that seem to be more beneficial and there are some that seem to be harmful. And so when you... And, and I've had the opportunity and the, the the privilege to work with some databases, the California teacher study. And what I did was I, I studied how the Mediterranean diet, which everybody talks about is, is structured and, and um, made. And when you look at the Mediterranean diet or the mind diet, again, the food that come on top are, are vegetables and mm -hmm. plants. They're fruits and legumes and nuts and seeds and whole grains, uh, unadulterated plant-based foods. And the more of these people consume in different communities, the less stroke they have, the less Alzheimer's disease they have, the less uh, chronic diseases of aging they have. And they've been associated with vascular risk factors like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. The so lower of these tend to actually improve brain health. Now, I know that there's a lot of noise out there and there are different dietary patterns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's always this, this, this fight. There's a lot of diet wars going on. But when you look at the science and the mechanism, it always comes towards plants. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's a spectrum, right? So how much do you want to stay? How long and how much do you want to stick to the healthier foods? That's what determines better brain health. Mm. 
when I hear Mediterranean diet, I'm always befuddled because I'm not sure whether that's they're they're referring to you know a robust um, you know panoply of of fruits and vegetables and nuts seeds and legumes or we're talking about wine and cheese and olive oil <laughs> like I, I is as somebody like in at least in the scientific context when you're doing these kinds of studies like how do they define that oh it's it's not that difficult actually um, so there's there are different processes and there are mechanisms and statistics and in science where you do factor analysis and you see what food stands out and that's one of the things that we are actually doing in one of our studies to see you know what is the effect of specific foods on brain health and yeah wine cheese pasta when you see the Mediterranean diet advertisement on the magazine is a you know pretty lady sitting next to a lake drinking wine mm. but it's not that it's actually it's actually the foods that are unprocessed and plant-based that seem to stand out mm-hmm. um, but again um, you know even even science has its flaws and there are some studies and some study that we were actually reading about a couple of days ago just came and it was published in a reputable journal saying that um, uh, cheese, a daily consumption of lamb and up to a bottle of wine seemed to reduce the risk for Alzheimer's disease and that plants were actually bad for you. So <laughs> just uh-huh. this manipulation As of data. compared actually, to what? Like how was that study set up? The study was well designed. Uh, the source of funding is questionable, so we won't go go there, but but uh, so it speaks to how science can be manipulated. Right. Even in, 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 the, in the right environments, it can be manipulated. Depends on what variables you throw into the formula, right? If, if you don't take into consideration the socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. I mean, who eats cheese, wine, and lamb? Higher socioeconomic population, which People means that they probably it, took yeah. care of themselves. And who did you compare against? People who had very low socioeconomic and therefore they had low, low resources, that they actually had other vascular risk factors and other things. So data can be manipulated, but the massive, massive body of evidence and a California teacher study, Aisha actually was the main author of this, uh, 133,000 people over 20 years. Adventist health study, 97,000 people over 50 years. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about you know the Harvard study and women's health study, large studies. The massive data shows, and Rush study, same things, um, a large study, that the dominant things that are helpful are the plants and vegetables and less processed food. So at the minimum, if people want to do something towards health, and if they don't, they don't even agree or they can't make the changes, which I, I then they should reduce the processed food. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that even among the meats, which if you go from beef jerky towards fish, you're more healthy. So we actually say, you know, we are plant-based, and we think that that's the best. I, I, even plant-based, we don't say vegan because. Vegan can be unhealthy. Right, that's like saying Mediterranean diet can mean exactly. many different things. Right. Exactly, that's true. We say plant-based, but thought out, planned. Uh, for example, um, um, that we are now pushing a little bit more olive oil, and even there, quantitatively less on the less side, because we think it can help with both uh, consumption of the food as well as absorption of vitamins, and also the data shows that we were just at the end of a, a, a big review. We we. As far as supplements, we don't push a lot of supplements, but for certain populations, developing brain and aging brain and those who are going through pregnancy, Mm omega-3s, whatever your source, seem to be, there's trend against science that there might be need for it. So there's data, you go with the data we do, uh, but it looks like the whole food plant-based diet seems to be by far most beneficial because of two reasons. It gets rid of the processed 
and all the negative elements, the vascular stimulant, the inflammatory products, and also gives you all the nutrients you ever need. All the deficiencies that you hear in the media, iodine deficiency or B12 deficiency, either they're not real or they can be easily mitigated while retaining all the benefit. That's mm-hmm. why the, the, the diet has been shown repeatedly to be beneficial. Right, well, let's dive into that a little bit more, more deeply. And, and maybe we could start with fish. I mean, you hear all the time, especially in the context of brain health, like, oh, fish is good for brain health. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are studies that say fish is part of a healthy diet. Typically those studies tend to be using fish as a comparison to beef and chicken. So it's not being compared to a whole food plant-based diet. But is it possible to maintain appropriate brain health without fish? What is it in fish that this is referring to? And if we're gonna take fish out off the plate, you know, what do we need to make sure that we're taking in that we're pushing all the right buttons? Yeah, I think that's a very important question. And you're right, uh, fish has always been compared to um, consumption of meat and chicken and other animal proteins. And so it seems to be better. And the reason being it has lower saturated fat content, which saturated fat is a major, major reason for damage for arteries in the brain and in our body, and especially causing inflammatory changes in the brain and insulin resistance, so on and so forth. So there's a whole cascade that has been associated with saturated fats. and you know, from a public health perspective, there's consensus that lowering the content of saturated fat in our diet is very important for better brain health. Um, So that's one aspect of consumption of fish, but you're right. There has been no study to show that compared to a healthy whole food plant-based diet, um, fish, a diet that contains fish is better. We don't have that information Mm -hmm. as of yet. We don't have it either way. Right, we don't have it either way. Um, We are concerned about um, animal proteins being a biomagnifier. You know, um, animals tend to retain um, elements that are they're surrounded within their environment. So, you know, all the the, the lead and the mercury and other um, organic compounds that we're dumping into the oceans, unfortunately, nowadays, they get concentrated in in the flesh of these marine animals. And if people consume fish, they consume those elements elements as well. And we believe that that could be a an important factor for brain diseases. And we think that a well-managed whole food plant-based diet eliminates that risk mm-hmm. and th- that we can get the omega-3 fatty acids that are that come from marine animals with a plant-based diet if we take supplements, say for example, at specific times during our life when our body needs it. So as a child, when a child is growing, or for example, when a woman is pregnant, or for example, when somebody's at a higher risk for developing mild cognitive impairment, supplement with omega-3 fatty acids derived from marine algae which doesn't really absorb much of those uh, the, the, the the elements mm-hmm. or the trace minerals could be very helpful. So we believe that one can actually have a very right. so good diet and a healthy diet without it. The idea being that everything that you would get in a fish oil supplement, for example, you can get in an algae-based supplement, you're just getting it lower on the food chain. You're, you're basically taking what the fish would filter through, <laughs> through right. its body um, and, and supplementing it in a condensed form. Exactly, the fish actually get the omega-3s from the marine right. algae. So what you hear a lot of, and I'm interested in, in how you're thinking about this is that given the importance of omega-3, that uh, there is something about 
plant-based omega-3s that aren't as bioavailable or aren't converted in the proper way that they are when they're found in animal foods. Hence, why you should be taking fish oil or these other things. And I know you did a whole podcast with our mutual friend, Simon Hill. Yeah. You've done many podcasts with him on his wonderful plant-proof podcast, but you did like a whole episode on omega-3. So we're not gonna spend two hours on omega-3s, <laughs> but like, I do wanna get this right. Sure, sure. Yeah, <clears throat> so we, we don't know the total picture. I mean, this is, I, uh, the humility of science is to say, this is how much I know, this is what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 we hate this battles by the absoluteness, absolutely not needed or absolutely needed. We don't, we don't have that much. So we did the complete review, two papers, one on developing brain and omega and the aging brain. And even there, we didn't have conclusive evidence, but there are trends especially in populations that are more vulnerable, the trends are saying repeatedly, especially if the studies were done better and more, that there seems to be need for omega-3. Given the risk factor, although there's some people talking about prostate cancer, all, those studies are weak and the data mm -hmm. is weak so far, but especially in populations that are vulnerable, the cost benefit for us, it appears to be on the side of using it. Not for everybody. I think if you're a young man or young woman in your 30s and 40s, if you wanna take supplements, that's fine. But I, we think that there's enough data that if you have enough chia and flaxseed and you know a walnut that you can you can do fine with it. But for a person that's pregnant, especially going uh, um, from plant-based uh, omega three, for developing brains where it's doubling every you know other week in size and numbers, and and the one thing you need for brain development that can't produce is DHA and omegas. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that's definitely needed, and for a brain that's under attack from vascular reasons, inflammatory reasons, when it's aging, we think it's needed. Mm -hmm. The cost benefit actually mm -hmm. speaks to it. The studies that, are, that, that would be there that would be conclusive have not been done. But having looked at the breadth of data with, when we did this research, we think the trends speak towards benefit. Mm -hmm. And speak to this, this uh, conversion issue. When we're talking about omega-3s, we're talking about DHA, ALA, and EPA. EPA. Yeah. It all gets very confusing very quickly here. But the idea is that, yeah, when you're taking those in on a plant-based diet, they're not converting in the right proportions or you're, you're losing out on some bioavailability here and it just doesn't work out. Yeah. First of all, I think we, I've never heard this, but I, I thought about it the other day. I was like, wait a second, why are we worried so much about conversion? Do we have enough or not? For example, nothing in our body gets converted at 100%. We don't have 100% bioavailability for anything. Unless you inject it mm -hmm. into the artery, you don't have bioavailability 100% for anything. Much of what's actually ultimately bioavailable is in the lower teens, lower 20s. I mean, you eat it, it gets consumed. A lot of it just gets you know, thrown out with the, with the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And then whatever is bioavailable. With ALA, the percentage varies. Some people say 5%, some people say 8%, others say up to, it's not about what they say, it's studies show up to 12% or more, but that's plenty. If you have one or two tablespoons or teaspo uh, tablespoons of you know, chia, which has, it's a great food, chia or flaxseed or, or hemp, the, one of the few foods where the omega-3 ratio compared to omega-6 is higher. Right. You don't even have that in animal food. So you have much higher absorption of ALA. Now the conversion of that to EPA and DHA uh, is slower, but you can still get plenty. The, the, the problem is when you need more. We think that when your brain, which actually incorporates rapidly mm -hmm. DHA, 
might not be getting enough with just those sources. Mm. And is there some idea that if you're beginning to experience cognitive decline or if you're at particular risk for that, that supplementing with omega-3s is a good idea? Yeah, I mean, the studies that were actually yeah. the strongest were in the MCIs right. or in mild cognitive mild impairment. Yeah, uh -huh. there was even uh, slow, slowing of the progression of MCI and even reversal some of the symptoms of patients who had MCI that took supplements and high doses of supplement that worked well for them. So yes, right. we do have evidence for that. But, but we also wanna couch this by saying, better studies need to be done. Right. Uh -huh. Lack of better studies does not negate trend and, and risk-benefit analysis, given that this is the most important, my, my, one of the most important micronutrients in the body, DHA. Mm -hmm. Well, the omega-6, omega-3 ratio thing is super interesting because sort of if you look <clears> back <throat> 50 years, our ratio of six to three was very different than it is now because we didn't have this proliferation of processed foods that are so high in omega-6. So now we're all taking in tons of omega-6, not enough omega-3. And so how much of, of our omega-3 intake or supplementation, how much of that is to kind of calibrate that ratio versus what we need independent of omega-6? In other words, if we're eating tons of omega-6, it, it, it seems to follow that we would then need to take in more omega-3 to create that correct ratio. Mm -hmm. There's a bigger problem. Yeah. Uh, which speaks to why we have to go whole plant-based. Um, so if you're eating omega-6, the pathway of conversion of DHA EPA is actually a great limiting step. So if you're having more omega-6s, you actually convert the omega, you can't get enough DHA conversion. So one of the things you have to do is reduce the omega-6 con mm -hmm. conversion as well, because the same enzyme that actually does the conversion is limited by both of them. If you have more omega-6, it stops, it the, becomes the rate limiting step. Of conversion of ALA to DHA. Correct. Yeah. So it's critical that not just to increase omega-3s, ALA and others, but also reduce omega-6 uh, sources. And what are those sources? All the foods that have increased in the last, actually every, 70, 80 years, mm -hmm. which are the processed meats and cheeses and butters and, and actually all processed foods that are out there have profound amounts of, we're talking about some foods have 4,000 to 8,000 as much omega-6 to omega-3. We weren't like that. So you'll never be able to correct that ratio. The you only can. way is to eliminate those foods. And by going whole food plant-based, you're getting rid of a lot of those nasty omega-6s that you don't want. And That's the right. benefit is exponential. You're reducing the harm fast, rapidly. And, and this rate limiting inflammatory and, so let's talk about omega-6, omega-3 quickly. So these are not unnatural pathways. Your body needs omega-6, mm -hmm. your body needs omega-3. One, and of course it's simplification, but omega-6 is the pro-inflammatory, pro-coagulation pathway. You need clotting don't, and you need inflammation. And omega-3 is the opposite. As it happens that as we get older, we need more anti-inflammatory because there becomes a chronic process of inflammation, which we have to counter. Right. And actually a baseline higher than normal. And the fact that our diets have changed. So now we have much more pro-inflammatory procoagulation. That's why we have more strokes. That's why we have more inflammatory diseases, including autoimmune diseases. So if you don't lower the inflammatory pathway, you can pump this up. It First of all, matter. it won't go through. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Right. All right, let me throw this one at you. Uh, the brain is made up of fat. It thus needs lots of fat in the diet, saturated fat, and also cholesterol. 
That drives me crazy. I hear this one a lot. <laughs> so walk, walk, walk us through this one. Yeah. That drives me crazy. But um, I think if you look at the structure of the brain, um, yes, the brain is made out of a lot of fat. Um, the numbers uh, vary. They say, you know, 60%, 70% fat, but that calculation doesn't really separate the amount of fluids that are in the brain too. So it's actually less than 60%, but we'll leave that alone. Mm. The important thing to remember is that um, fats actually don't cross uh, big molecules of fat, like cholesterol and saturated fats. They actually can't cross through the blood-brain barrier, which are these tight junctions between uh, cells in the endothelium of the cells that allow specific things to go in and specific things to come out. So the fat that is in the brain is structural fat. The mm -hmm. only fats that are needed by the fat on a daily basis, um, by the brain by the, on a daily basis are omega-3 fatty acids. Um, and those are small enough to actually go um, be used. And that's basically it. The rest is just structural fat and it's maintained by all the other micronutrients and by all the other food elements that we consume. Mm -hmm. So we don't need cholesterol for our brain to maintain its function at all. Even under the worst circumstances, your liver and your body makes enough of the rest of the fat for the brain if it needs it. Agreed. Mm -hmm. It's not a problem. And the brain as well. Any right. access actually just okay. gets metabolized or they sit on your arteries and they start the process of just plaque formation, unfortunately. Uh-huh. So nothing to that one. No, not at all. Right. And, and talk about saturated fat uh, more broadly in terms of, of brain health. I mean, we are... <clears throat> Look, there are these crazy diet wars going on right now. Yeah. Everybody's, you know, planting their flag in various corners of the internet. We've got the carnivores and we've got the keto people. And, you know, you will, I see this all the time. Like keto people will say, you know, I adopted a ketogenic diet. Uh, I can focus better. My brain is working better. I'm able to work longer in a more productive way than I was able to previously. Of course, that's anecdotal. Um, but there's a lot of people who feel pretty strongly about this. So yeah. speak, speak to this a little bit. I, I think that um, they do feel more focused and I believe them. I think that short term, they actually do better cognitively, not better than any other diet, but they do better than what their baseline would have been. And that's why, but, but long term, there's no data. I mean, if you look at ketogenic diet data, there's nothing more than six months, nothing meaningful longer than six months. Ketogenic diet came from our field, neurology, where children with a particular type of seizure, which were not controlled by multiple medications, they were put in a shock state to control seizures. Why would we think that that's representative of a brain that's not undergoing mm -hmm. shock? They're putting, they're changing the acidic state of the brain so that the seizure is stopped. That's not representative. And then the other thing is, how long, how, how long can you maintain that under normal circumstances? These children were kept in spe special wards or with special diets, maintaining a ketogenic diet, a true ketogenic diet. And I can very, tell you- It's a lot harder than maintaining a whole food plant-based diet. It's oh, crazy difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult. Most of the people that said, they say that they have, they're on ketogenic they're diet, not, yeah. they, they've never achieved keto ketosis. They're just eating more meat. And that, that they call that ketogenic diet. It's much harder than that. So short term, they do better. They do very well with glucose and insulin resistance. They do well as far as focus and they do even do some better with, with certain cognitive testing, with, which has been done short term. But nothing has been shown long term 
There are no populations that have lived this life that can give you long-term benefit. The one population, which are these seizure patients, have had many multiple um, medical problems, side effects as a result of it. So we are open. We're absolutely open right. because there are there are plant-based versions of ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. So we're open to see if long-term anybody can show evidence, but nothing so far. Right, but the brain runs on glucose. Brain runs on right? glucose. And so on a ketogenic diet, you're depriving it of glucose and it's being um, forced to run on ketones, correct? Right. Correct. So right. is there some scientific sensibility of how the brain functions on ketones versus glucose? Well, yeah. the analogy, you wanna tell them the analogy? Well, go ahead, you tell no, your you, analogy. You, I'll let you tell this. I'll, I'll do the nicer part. <laughs> okay. I, I, I call a ketogenic diet as of now, it might be pejorative, but uh, almost like a, um, a cheating on, on your wife kind of a thing. Uh, 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 so- <laughs> How dare you? I know, I mean, terrible. But uh, uh, so glucose is the main molecule that the cell requires. Mm -hmm. if preferred two, fuel. Preferred mm -hmm. fuel. We did a study in Haines, one of the largest uh, databases, looking at even insulin resistance, not the, the diabetics. We took them out and looked at uh, insulin. They had lower cognitive state. So insulin resistance is what we're looking at. If you have too much glucose with food that rapidly rises uh, glucose, what happens is the cell notices that there's too much of this. And actually the receptors go in. So it's I, the analogy I give is like um, somebody's coming as a suitor for your, your son or daughter and, and they knock at the door mm -hmm. and there are too many people, the door just closes and comes out. And the, but if it's accepted, if it's the right amount of glucose, the door opens, then it has to go to the father, to the mother. To the, this is an old fashioned story. Right. Right, yeah, yeah, but it's okay. And <laughs> uncle, and there's a huge family there that you have to go. Glucose has to do a lot of work to ultimately get to the mitochondria. Imagine what mitochondria mm -hmm. is. So it has a lot of work to do. Six, seven, 10 cycles of processing. Mm -hmm. First of all, it actually has to get through the blood brain barrier, through an active transport, a lot of work. And that is designed to be like that. It's evolutionary designed to go through this hard work for glucose to get into the cell and be functional because that's how it manages it long-term. Now let's look at, look at keto bodies, ketone bodies. They're small molecules. They're cheating. They're going right through the window and mm -hmm. right into the mitochondria. Skipping all the steps. Yeah, don't have to deal with dad and None of that crazy stuff. uncle. <laughs> Initially, a lot of energy, a lot of fun, a lot of other stuff. Uh, this this analogy always goes awry, but, but long-term it's, it's, you know, you, yeah. you feel, so ketone bodies might work short-term because it's a quick burst, right. even for the mitochondria. But where does it, in the biochemistry, textbooks or any uh, um, uh, biochemical process, does it say that doing the quick thing in the biochemical processes is long-term benefit? Mm. From my reading and Aisha's reading and our research and molecular pathways, there's no evidence that anything that's short-term like that is going to be beneficial long-term. Right. Like you said, it's a, it's a, it's under a shock state. So, uh, you know, and most of the studies that have been done on ketone bodies um, have been done in individuals who have had advanced Alzheimer's disease. And at that stage, there's a lot of damage that has already been done. Uh, there's the, the structural damage, vascular damage. And so ketone bodies act as an alternative fuel, right? So mm -hmm. the, the cells probably don't have the opportunity to use glucose as a fuel, but ketones that don't require all these steps that Dean mentioned, 
you know, they don't have to go through it and they go right into the cell. And initially there may be some improvement in their cognitive skills and in their neuropsychological scores. But long-term, I think the only study that we have is a feasibility study that was less than six months. And that's mm -hmm. basically it. So we don't have any long-term um, results. And if we do, I'll be excited to actually read about it and because it, it sounds yeah. very promising. We just I mean, don't have the data yet. It, is it not an emergency state for the body. It's like a survival mechanism right. that evolved over millennia to keep a human being alive if they were deprived of food for a certain period of time, right? So in that sense, the the your physiology is in crisis. Is there a downstream impact on on your uh neurological functioning? Like are you in a in a you know a a, a sort of um sympathetic nervous system state of, of high alert when that's going on. Right. You, you, we think so. We think, I think it's a survival state. It, it, that's why survival states are short-term states. That's why, I mean, when we talk about stress, it's a short-term beneficial state that now has become chronic. Right. We keep missing the evolutionary flaw here. We keep addressing what's short-term benefit and think that that's long-term benefit. Mm -hmm. It's not. Uh, so we think that at least biochemically, even evidentially, I mean, mm -hmm. we're looking at evidence from all the studies. There's no evidence at this point that this is a, a magical cure for dementia or Alzheimer's or any of these things. It's just a short-term survival mm. that long-term we think has consequences. Right, rather than climbing in the window, how about this analogy? It's sort of like uh, pulling an all-nighter and you can, you're gonna, you're gonna get away with the grade on the test, but a month later, you're not gonna remember anything. I can say that like story that. much better than my yeah. story. Than <laughs> I don't know. Many um, so, so let's look at the foods that, that are beneficial. Like when you look at the, the plant kingdom, what stands out, you know, I know we, we wanna stay away from quote unquote superfoods, but some foods are better than others. Mm -hmm. Like what should people focus on who are trying to enhance their brain health? Yeah, I think um, if if I had to give a quick version of uh, of what's out there um, as far as data is concerned, um, consumption of green leafy vegetables, for example, seems to be very helpful. And it's like unanimous results that you see across different studies. Um, uh, berries such as blueberries and strawberries, they stand out, whether it's the MIND diet or the Mediterranean diet, or even in the Adventist Health Study, because these are foods that have the highest amount of anti-inflammatories, spices like turmeric, like we actually mm -hmm. wrote a paper in, uh, when we were in Cedar sinai where we gave our patients high doses of turmeric and turmeric seems to have the curcumin part of it is a very potent anti-inflammatory and it seems to bind with amyloid, which is the bad protein associated with Alzheimer's disease and it, it, it removes it. Oh, wow. And we measured um, the amount of um, amyloid, the amyloid load in retina. And after giving them high amounts of turmeric, we actually saw the turmeric binding to the amyloid in the retina, which is really, really really interesting and we're learning more about it as we speak. Um, and uh, um, yeah, so high fiber green leafy vegetables and berries and spices, especially turmeric seems to be on the top. Chi and flaxseed. Chi yeah, and flaxseed, which are amazing sources of plant-based omega-3 fatty <clears throat> acids, hemp seeds, nuts like walnuts, um, whole grains, 
Um, they seem to have the right kind of micronutrients, whether it's thiamine or riboflavin or folic acid, bound beautifully synergistically, supporting each other's absorbance and uh, bioavailability. They all tend to reduce the risk for Alzheimer's mm. disease. And we have studies that have looked at individual foods and risk of Alzheimer's disease and the combination thereof too. Are there any plant foods to avoid? I would say the plant foods to avoid seems to be coconut oil. I know that that again is mm. a controversial area and a lot of people so are just, yeah, they love coconut. Right I know, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you know, I, I love coconut. Well, that coconut. used to be the thing, coconut oil for <laughs> yeah. brain health. Yeah, yes. I know. And unfortunately the data was pretty flawed when it came out. It was based um, on a couple of uh, case studies and it, as it happened, somebody gave their loved ones some coconut oil and they seemed to improve, but then there was no long-term follow-up. But coconut oil, and I'm happy to say that there's consensus on it. And you know, as a scientist, I want to look at different sources of data, uh-huh. whether it's clinical trials, whether it's epidemiological, whether it's case series, and there's consensus between different scientists and doctors and physicians that um, coconut oil seems to increase our bad cholesterol, LDL, which can result into vascular damage. And um, the reason being is because coconut oil is one of the few plant oils that is more than 90% saturated fat. Mm-hmm. And so is palm oil. And the, the little nuance to as the MCT, um, medium chain uh, triglycerides, uh, triglycerides mm-hmm. uh, that has to be studied. And we're open to that. I mean, uh-huh. we think that if, if that's, those studies come back and show some uh, benefit, Mm, uh, we would be more than happy because we need any anything that's out there that's going to help. So far, no data, no right. tangible data. But with coconut oil, doesn't that uh, that LDL saturated fat component isn't it fairly easily converted to like linoleic acid, which makes it more available as an energy source as opposed to being stored? It could, but reality is that that number, so that, that's a mechanism. Actually, that mechanism exists for a lot of saturated fats. Uh-huh. But the reality is that when the studies are done over and over again, what they see is when people consume coconut oil, it is actually the atherogenic and inflammatory component that mm. predominates. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it is a processed food anyway. So yes. in the context of talking about whole food plant-based diet, it's not even really part of that correct conversation Great. anyway, but you did shift gears with olive oil to some regard. Uh, here's talk about controversial. Yeah. We were actually ostracized by some communities for this, which I'd never there's thought a, that- There's a heated debate going on. Yes. Right. People are, yeah, there people is. are very strong opinions about yeah. this. It's so funny. I, you know, we worked in Afghanistan and, and, and were uh, ostracized by Taliban. So some plant-based people ostracizing us doesn't scare us too much, <laughs> but yeah. So please ostracize us yeah. away. They're, All we're they're saying, not as well armed. Not as well armed. And, and so much lovelier people yeah. anyway. So <laughs> reality is we're open to data. Uh, it's not about dogma. Um, and there are a couple of lines of argument. And it's not always because we looked at Mediterranean diet. We're actually in the middle of doing a meta-analysis. Uh, the data is, uh, again, trend. Mm-hmm. The, and nutrition data is tough. So you have to go with trends and multiple domains of trends. And it appears that some, and here's another controversial term, some, uh, olive oil seems to help with cognition, seems to help with health in general, and, and specifically Evo, you know, extra virgin olive oil. And, and then the quantity is controversial how much we think that there is a point of excess. Uh, so we say use as minimal as possible just to help with both digestion and with food. Uh, but, but we just wanted to open up the, the realm, even though we might, make people angry, that's okay, that's our life. Uh, but it's, if it's data shows this way, we gotta start talking about mm-hmm. it. And, and at the same time, 
when we go to these churches and faith communities, which we have another one of our projects is a women-centered uh, faith-based community uh, uh, brain initiative in African-American churches mm-hmm. where disproportionately impacted by all disproportion- And right. also more yeah. importantly, as Aisha's finished getting her PhD in women's leadership, right. focusing on women and health is the most effective money spent in health. So if you're going to change, bring a brain health initiative, it should be around women. So mm-hmm. especially African-American women or uh, uh, black women and their communities. But we see, and if we go to these communities and Hispanic communities and other communities in Appalachia or Pittsburgh, where I come from and say, no meat, no cheese, no butter, no salt, no sugar, no fat, no oil, no Dean. Right. <laughs> so yeah, you're gonna have a little bit of an adherence problem. Uh, absolutely. Now that doesn't speak to the science. I, and I spoke already to the science that there seems to be some trend that that's positive, uh, olive oil is fine, especially cardiovascular data. Um, but it does speak also to compliance. And since we work in the communities and we're not doing contrived 100% studies in, in, a, in a lab, we think that's as important. Well, compliance is everything. If you don't have compliance, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Um, but you have to be careful, right? Because you don't wanna veer too far towards compliance, then you're the practitioner who's like, I'm not gonna tell them about lifestyle because they're not gonna do it. Exactly, right. exactly. It's, it's, right. a, it's a balancing act. It's a, so we say what's the optimal, especially people who have, I mean, so complexity is, you know, somebody said, I think somebody we know said that the, the, the entire problem we have in, in this world is, uh, I think that cats, is, is about uh, people not being comfortable with complexity. There's yeah. a complexity in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the complexity is, we have to worry about adherence, but at the same time, we have to say what the truth is. And here's another layer of complexity. If somebody has a four vessel disease, we say, go all the way, no fat, because mm-hmm. the data is there. That if you have four vessel arterial disease, you might as well go all the way uh, as opposed to, you know, so so there's, there's a bit of complexity there. Right. Uh, yeah, people don't like that. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm it's sorry. It's hard, the truth, I'm listen, sorry. the truth will set you free. Uh, you have to be able to make room for nuance yeah. now more than ever. Things are so crazy out there, and, yeah. and the only way to do that is to have, you know, conversations like this. It's not going to happen on Twitter, and it's yeah. tricky. And it's and it's people's identities are are wrapped up in these ideas, and people don't like to be challenged with that because it threatens. Like it's almost like cognitive decline. Like you're, you're, you're like my sense of who I am is being pulled out from underneath me. Right. And emotionally, it's very difficult. Right. Uh, you, yeah. uh, contra- <laughs> One of the people we admire greatly, we're not gonna name names, don't worry. Um, <clears throat> actually said they would not endorse our book, even though we are in the communities by the thousands, helping thousands of people with a whole food plant-based diet, just because we say, add a little bit of olive oil. Mm. Yeah, everything gets more and more specialized. It used to just be vegetarianism and then it's vegan and vegetarianism. And then within those categories, there's there's you know more and more silos until there's just one person left in each one <laughs> of the silos. And nobody can talk. Everybody's got their own news feed, you yes. know, and we can't communicate with each other yeah. anymore. I mean, that's yeah. where this is headed. It's so. sad, it's sad, it's anyway. sad. Yeah. It's sad. Um, Aisha, how many PhDs do you need? <laughs> no, I, I'm just, I'm, I feel so lucky. Well, first of all, I have this amazing partner that you know just allows me to, to experience life in its fullest, and um, you know, having 
so I have a master's in clinical research and I went to medical school and I've worked in clinics and I got a fellowship in vascular neurology. But the more I, the more I am in this, in this field, I realize that if we don't um, focus on the human component, it's meaningless, meaningless. And having had the privilege of working in the communities, meaning going there, sitting down with them, listening to them, working in the community clinic where you have these lovely people coming in and telling like, doc, I know, I know this is important. I just can't do it right now. I just can't do it because of this, 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 this. Mm -hmm. You can't really talk to a, a woman who has two jobs, is divorced, has four or five children to take care of, has a parent with dementia that she takes care of, has tremendous amount of stress because of the situation in the world and tell them, you know, just uh, meditate every day. Meditation is really good for your right. brain. That is such an elitist statement. I, that is such a flawed approach to health. And so what do you do to make yourself available? And what do you do to create an environment in their communities where they can have access to health and wellness in in their comfort, in their comfort zones? And so um, having worked with different individuals and especially in the, uh, the faith-based communities, the one thing Dean and I have noticed, and this actually comes from our work in Afghanistan as well, where... We've noticed that if uh, if we invest in the women in those communities, you've actually invested in the families and in the mm. communities because women's are the best representatives of that unit in the community. And um, when you look at different models of success in the world, um, one of them that came from Dr. Yunus, who was the Nobel Peace Prize laureate. He's the father of uh, microcredits, where he, you know, essentially helped women and their small right. businesses. And he he made some profound statement. He said, when you help women, you actually help families and you help change that society because no disrespect to men, I love you guys, but um, women know how to invest in their families and in their units. And so I, I'm pursuing this PhD in women's leadership because we believe that if women are ambassadors of brain health and mental health, I think it's a game changer. Um, yeah. And we've wow. seen that. We've seen that in in Afghanistan and Dean doesn't talk about that, but you know, one of the things that is so such a profound story in our life was when, um, I'm going to say that story for you. Um, when he was working for the World Bank, he was in Afghanistan and he was running the Ministry of Health. And one of the challenges was to um, make health available for all these provinces and villages that were away from the capital. And there are not a lot of hospitals there. I think we learned more about public health there than any course at Columbia that any course at NIH and UCSD mm. and Loma Linda University combined together. Um, so knowing um, knowing the the politics and the bureaucracy, what Dean did was essentially a social jujitsu, where he trained, he created the establishment to train twenty thousand girls 
who were, you know, went to school up to sixth grade, because after that, they, they usually, there's no education available for girls in the prov provinces. And so he took sixth grade educated girls and he wanted to train them in just basic health care, how to give ampicillin when somebody has upper respiratory infection, how to create oral rehydration solution, which is, you know, one liter of boiling water, one fist of sugar and a pinch of salt, because one in five, is it? children under the age of five die from easily preventable diarrhea in mm -hmm. those countries. Mm -hmm. And to give them that oral rehydration solution, you've actually saved a life. Mm. Or to tell the difference between spotting and bleeding in a pregnant woman, because the hospital ride is about five days on a donkey, right? <sighs> right. So just basic things. And so there was a lot of pushback initially about this project. They said, nope, you're not going to take our girls and educate them. This is this is against our faith, against our culture and tradition. And and Dean said, no, 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 no. This is you know this is going to be done in your in your communities and in your villages. And so they accepted it, and that that was a beautiful move because they created mud huts clinics for these girls mm -hmm. in a very prominent place with a flag on it. And it was just a very basic place with a chair and a table and maybe a, a bed sheet as a, as a curtain with a small little bed for the, the midwife or the nurses, uh -huh. nurses and midwifery program to examine patients. And guess who would get sick after a few days? The men would get sick too, right? right? And there would be that girl and she would be the community doctor. Uh -huh. And suddenly you've completely the flipped the relationships. Yeah. That just fucks up their whole mindset of the whole thing. Without, so the jujitsu here <laughs> yeah. is you don't have to confront <laughs> cultural yeah. paradigms. You you jujitsu around it. Mm -hmm. uh, and when, when most of healthcare, thank you so much for telling that story. That's amazing, by the uh, way, like no, incredible. Uh, we, we wrote a paper together. In, uh, yeah, it's actually how, in Lancet. Oh, wow. To, it, how to apply it to other communities. Right. And if we do that, not so much jujitsu, but use the resources of the community to build this paradigm around women, I mean, you've, your wife, yeah. the, the power, we, we know. We know. What a and, human and she Aisha. is. That's and, and also yeah. they're the leaders. And even, mm -hmm. in, even in those Taliban infested places, yeah, they do all the yelling and jumping around the men do, but who runs the households? Right, they're making the decisions about- They're making yeah. decisions. What and people every are doing, community what they're the case. Yeah. Women are the leaders. Women are actually the leaders. And we can build a whole healthcare system, brain health initiative around women. So that's been our work for the last two, mm. two and a half years. Right. Yeah. So applying that template, you know, here in the United States, going into these communities, trying to pull some, you know, tweaked version of that jujitsu maneuver to, you know, empower these women, enlist them in this cause and in turn have them help create structures that trickle down into their families. Right, absolutely. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, so that's the goal. And it's been an amazing journey just to, you know, experiencing that firsthand to see how wonderful of a communicator a woman can be mm -hmm. and how easy it is for others to listen to a woman who is a sister, a mother, an individual in the community coming from a very empathic and a loving place, but at the same time from a very powerful place. Um, uh, I'm just so excited to be in that yeah. Uh, area. Yeah, the, the, there's, there's no bounds to the upside of that, That's I right. think, right? That's right. Well, let's talk about the new book. I mean, you guys wrote this amazing book, The Alzheimer's Solution that came out a couple of years ago. That's what brought you onto the show uh, 
uh, back back <clears throat> then, um, which is basically an incredible primer on all the research that you've done, case studies, uh, your work with your patients in terms of implementing uh, lifestyle uh, interference to interrupt this uh, brain dementia issue that is mushroom clouding in our society. Yeah. But the new book, The 30 Day Alzheimer's Solution, right? Uh, is more of a, a tactile, like very easy to use guide for how to kind of, you know, implement these tools into your daily life using this neuro paradigm of, it's basically mostly nutrition focused. You talk about the other stuff, but it takes you through a program. It gives you kind of tools for how to make these changes in your life. And then you have all of these beautiful recipes to try to make it as appealing and delicious and, and easy for people to, to, to do as possible. So it's great. I love it. I, my only complaint is that it was a digital version and I don't have the book yet, but it's coming out soon. So talk a little bit about why you decided to write this book and what your in, in, you know, plan for it is. Thanks, Rich. That's very kind of you. And we'll definitely get you a copy. Mm -hmm. um, I think the pandemic slowed down everything, but um, we're, we're very proud of it. Um, it, was, um, it was difficult to put our experiences in a way where it's translational and palatable, pardon the pun. Um, but we wanted to focus in on um, the how part of brain health. You know, the first book was essentially the why and a lot mm. of science, but the applicability part has been expanded in this book. And, you know, the title, the 30 day was a little uncomfortable initially. Like, what, is, what does that even mean? Does it mean that in 30 days, I'm going to have the best brain? No, but I think it's a 30 day journey or a plan towards that direction. And uh, uh, we're, we're just really excited. And I think one of the reasons I went to cooking school after going to fellowship was just because of that, that the, the passion that I have for application of all the science and knowledge that we have mm -hmm. already. Mm -hmm. One of the key things in behavior changes um, <clears throat> process. A lot of times people get focused on goals and goals fail us because once you reach, as I said, uh, you feel an anticlimactic and, and then what? It's process that's important. Systems have to be established. So the 30 days is attempting, and I, I never want to do hyperbole, and is attempting to create an environment for systems. In fact, we, with the book, for those who sign up early, this is a marketing tool, but uh, they get a- <laughs> You get all kinds of bells and whistles. Uh, I saw that. My goodness, yeah. I, I never thought that at NIH I would be doing this stuff. But, <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, or, or uh, but but, but turn no, into a marketer. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, but it is actually uh, I think it's uh, it's helpful. We are giving people. By the way, it's, it's we said if you if you buy the book early, you get access. But it's actually honor system. You don't have to buy the book. You can get get access uh -huh. to a thirty day course that starts at first um, of April up to the end, where we have sleep doctors, stress doctors, uh, nutritionists. Lots of data and, and equipment and cooking sessions and, and courses where I should, that's for free, by the way, takes them with the book through this process for a month, not with the hopes that at the end they come out completely different, but for them to be familiar with possibilities of where the changes, the micro changes can take place. You've spoken to a, an amazing, um, uh, the Atomic Habits. Uh, James Clear. James Clear. Clear. Yeah. I love the book. Great I mean, I've read a lot of books. Yeah. It's those little incremental successes that change into habits, which change into then culture. So this month is about going through this process with brain in mind, 
sorry, that there's another one that came out, uh, <laughs> that, that actually takes them through. And they're hopefully by the end of it, they have enough of these little micro habits that becomes a process yeah. individualized and habits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you broke it all down and, and you didn't sugarcoat it either. You're like, look, this is gonna be hard. You're gonna, if you're gonna get off cheese, it's gonna be uncomfortable. Yeah. Like you're not trying to say it's all gonna be awesome all the time. Like right. it's, it's, you know, making any kind of change is difficult and uh, this is no different, but what you find on the other side is, is, is worth it. And you give the right amount of like encouragement and you couch motivation in the right context. And I appreciated that as well. Um, but you, you, you paint with a broad brush so that you know anybody could pick this up and and you know get their head around what the right path is. That was the goal. That yeah. was the goal for. You know, we basically wrote this for our caregivers and the patients mm-hmm. and everybody that's that's been touched by by Alzheimer's. Um, and I know the cover says Alzheimer's, but it's essentially brain health in general and cognitive decline, yeah. which a lot more people are experiencing. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to appeal to a young person to make changes in their life because they might get Alzheimer's. Like that's talk about a motivation <laughs> problem. <Yes. laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. But if you, yeah. if you instead rephrase it as cognitive enhancement or yeah. you know, some sort of you know, brain hack or something like that, yeah. then suddenly you get young people's attention. Absolutely. Yeah. You get them interested in taking care of their brains so that they don't fall prey to this later in life. Absolutely, Absolutely. yeah. I, Absolutely. Think, yeah. I think it's important to say it that way. Yeah. Right. And, and, and for us, uh, we, we have the Healthy Minds Initiative, which is a non-for-profit right. where our goal is hopefully that we can promulgate and spread this concept of coaching, women-centered coaching throughout the country. Um, and whatever uh, comes out of this book goes towards that effort. Um, whoever wants to help us out goes towards that that effort, and I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. With Aisha in the lead, and I'm the I'm the driver. Oh, right. We're a team. Wow! We're so team. all proceeds from the book go to the nonprofit. All, all of it. Fantastic. Yeah. All the all the profits. Yeah, yeah. and 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 that nonprofit um, Healthy Minds Initiative is very involved in what you're doing in Redondo, where you live right now. But the idea, much like Blue Zones, is to kind of scale this. For and model it for other cities and communities. Absolutely, yeah, that's yeah, right. Absolutely. The Beach Cities Health District is is um, is where our flagship Healthy Minds Initiative study right. is going on. We have one in Arizona, um, in South Carolina, and we're expanding it in other states as well. Cool. And we're basically training um, coaches who can be brain health representatives and ambassadors in their community and just move it forward. Right. Um, Awesome. Well, we got to land this plane, but I, I got two more things I want to ask you before I let you go. The first is obviously there's so much more research that needs to get done in terms of brain health and also nutrition and you know how lifestyle impacts brain health. What is, if you had your druthers, like what is the study that you would set up? Like what is the big study that's missing right now? Like forget about cost, just how would you do it? What would it look at? Hmm. <clears throat> First of all, it would be a little longer term. It would be at least three to five years. And it would actually have imaging and it would be community-based. That mm. seems contradictory, like this technology, and but it would be community-based because if uh, just like mouse models that work, you know, 400 mouse models for Alzheimer's worked, zero worked on humans. Uh-huh. The same way this, these little contrived 100%, 200% studies on six months, seven months means nothing. If we don't do it in larger populations and we don't get good markers of cognition, which is neuropsychological testing, biomarkers and imaging that shows this change over time, 
it's, it, it's meaningless because mm -hmm. you will get every diet will come up with a paper saying, look at my study, six months, look at my study. There will be many of them, documentaries and everything put together, but we need a larger study for going forward. So we're doing the data capture in our national, we'll take mm -hmm. care of the funding there. Uh, we don't have the funding for imaging. We don't have the funding for blood tests and, and the regular funding sources don't seem to get it. They're not adjusting, um, uh, saying, look, we'll take care of the educational component. We'll take care of the resources, the technology. We'll take care of all of that. But we need some help with the biomarkers and imaging component. And we can have the, the best study for cognition. And then we will have studies that we'll look at because it's a large population. We'll know data on ketogenic. We'll know data on plant-based whole food. We will know data on omnivore mm -hmm. or, or, or even pescatarian. That would be the optimal study mm. uh, that would be out there. So essentially a massive population study, community-based study of where people would be self-reporting or? We, we the, have the methods of collecting data, uh -huh. not on a once a year basis where the food frequency questions are, but actually on a monthly or weekly basis, we have the tools now. Uh -huh. We're actually using that in beach cities. Uh, using iPads and computers, we can collect the data on as far as that's concerned. We have the tools as far as collecting sophisticated cognitive information mm -hmm. on, the, on the computers, and we'll take care of all of that. Um, so those two big components, and yeah. as far as teaching them using Zoom, for us, Zoom was now actually yesterday, we had a Zoom session with our teaching population of our, over a hundred people. So that's even taken care of, we'll take care of the education component on a weekly basis and the coaching training. The only thing is needed is that biomarker funding that would really help us out because the, this bigger cost we've taken care of. Mm. Um, okay, last question. I can't remember whether I asked you guys this last time you were here. If I did, I'm gonna ask you again. I don't remember what you said anyway. Um, if, uh, if you woke up tomorrow and, and realized you'd been appointed as Surgeon General of the United States oh, and given the kind of, uh, metastasizing Alzheimer's problem, like this, you know, apocalyptic number of people, you know, tripling by 2050, you know, what kind of policies would you try to implement or legislative changes would you be thinking about that could move us in the right direction as, as a nation? Ooh, that's a tough one. You wanna go first? Okay. Well, I would say, I would yeah. say, um, I would say more um, more resources for communities about managing their lifestyle. Um, um, I think most of the funding goes into very specific molecular um, uh, datas. I think less is being focused on individuals in the communities. Mm -hmm. And that's where I would focus, whether it's uh, uh, changing lifestyle with behavior models, whether it's nutrition education, whether it's exercise education and fitting it according to their resources, that would be the place to, uh, to focus on. Mm -hmm. I, I fully agree. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about, we talked about mind diet at one point, which is not an optimal diet. Even the people, um, uh, the, the main uh, PI passed away recently. Martha Morris, Martha Morris. And even she away, said yeah. it's not the optimal diet, but yet 53% reduction in Alzheimer's. And, and I'm sure that the same number would apply if not more for stroke and everything with this mind diet. So why wouldn't we invest at all in this kind of an approach? and especially in the community-based model. Mm -hmm. So I would, I fully agree with Aisha, that would be the investment. Yeah, it seems like uh, more um, local-based uh, medicine, uh, an overhaul of healthcare 
to re, you know, sort of reconfigure it around prevention right. as opposed to diagnosis and prescribing people. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, we need a lot of changes, don't we? We do. But you guys are playing a huge role in reversing this this tide, and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. You're you're truly saving saving lives, and it's admirable. And I wish you all the best. It's amazing what you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you for helping us you. disperse the message. Yeah. I mean, this this is this is truly important. Anything to help you guys out thank anytime. You. Reach out. Um, thank you. That was amazing. Appreciate you guys. Appreciate you. Uh, the new book is called The Thirty Day Alzheimer's solution. That's it's right. available March 23rd. Correct. That's pub date, right? Yes, it is. Um, practical guide to help you wrap your head around everything that we talked about today. And more importantly, implement those changes into your life. If you wanna dive deep into the science and geek out on all of that, I would highly recommend picking up the Alzheimer's solution, their first book. It's amazing. You can find these guys at Team Shurzai on the internet. That's right. And anything else, anywhere else to point people? Is there a website for your nonprofit if people wanna learn more about healthymindsinitiative.org. that? Healthymindsinitiative.org, yes, okay. healthymindsinitiative.org. And they can contact us. And if they're interested in mm. volunteering or having us come to their communities, we would be happy to do that. Awesome, all right. And you guys are welcome here anytime. Thank come back you, and talk Rich. to me again, okay? Thank, Thank you. you so much. All right. Thank you. Peace. Peace. Plants. <laughs> <laughs> Peace awesome. and plants. Thanks for listening, everybody. For links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page on richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis. Portraits by Allie Rogers and Davey Greenberg. Graphic elements courtesy of Jessica Miranda. Copywriting by Georgia Whaley. And our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. You can find me at richroll.com or on Instagram and Twitter at richroll. I appreciate the love. I love the support. I don't take your attention for granted. Thank you for listening. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Yeah.